0: this as a humorous occasion, but I have to tell you that it's only part two that aspires to be humorous. Part one is a philosophical lecture. Uh, I suppose some people are laughing because they doubt the contrast between philosophy and humor. And indeed, there are some quite funny philosophical jokes around, most of which were made up by one philosopher, namely Sidney Morgan Besser of Columbia University. For example, there is Sidney Morgan Besser's reply to an extremely deep question asked by one of the most distinguished Nazi philosophers of the 20th century, that is Martin Heidegger. Heidegger begins his book... Was ist die, das or or der? I don't don't remember. remember. I don't dare to get the right article here because I'm not sure which is is which. But anyway, anyway, he begins his book, book. What What is Metaphysics, with the question, which is very challenging, why is there something rather than nothing at all? And Morgan Besser imagines an exchange between Heidegger and Morgan Besser, which Heidegger begins by saying, why is there something rather than nothing at all? And Morgan Besser replies, so "So if there there was nothing, nothing, you'd you'd still complain. complain.
1: All right. Uh, My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I'm joined as always by super producer Forrest Miller.
2: Yep, Forrest Miller, happy father of uh happy father of four, Amazon employee. Uh and I and I and I don't I don't believe in unionization. You know, I just don't want to pay the dues.
1: Uh, oh, oh, that was very convincing. I like it. <laughs> uh yeah, if you if you look at Twitter right now, there are a lot of accounts that sound exactly like Forrest just sounded.
2: Yeah. It's it's good to give them the <laughs> <laughs> It's just,
1: just, just, that robotic. You know, I am a father of four. I am an Amazon employee. I am very happy. No need for a union here.
2: <laughs> lots of other, uh, lots of other employee. You know, lots of other companies unionize, and it works great for them. But I don't think we need one here because I don't get paid enough for the dues, and my family of sixteen children really needs that extra income right now. Happy, yeah. happy employee. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: I, I really want to go and see how many of them are, like, stock photos, because it seems like some of them they found definitely are, um, like, stock photo accounts. Like, I feel like a lot of them are. Oh, like-
1: yeah. No, I, I, I saw, well, actually, Nanda, who we're going to be talking about later today, found at least one, uh, yeah. like, really obvious stock photo. Uh, it was your know, Amazon employee account. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we're gonna be, uh, we're gonna be talking more about that, uh, in, uh, in just a moment, um, and, uh, and, and watching our, uh, uh, patron saint, uh, Bernard Sanders, uh, you know, uh, talk, uh, talking about that, uh, but, um, but yeah, I want to, uh, want to let people know what they have in for them for the rest of the show, so, uh, the cold open, uh, that we started with, uh, was, uh, one of my very favorite philosophers, uh, G. A. Cohen, uh, Marxist analytic philosopher, uh, died several years ago. He's also uh, one of uh, the Zero Hour hosts, uh, R. J. Esko's uh, favorite philosophers, and uh, so in just a few minutes, R. J. is going to come on the show, uh, and uh, and we're going to uh, we're going to talk some Cohen uh, afterwards. Uh, you know, we're going to we're going to transition from. Uh, You know, from philosophical abstraction to, uh, you know, the uh, the concrete class war and uh, talk uh, to our good friend and, you know, GTA uh, extended universe member uh, Nando Vila uh, at the very least. Right. He's on the Sopranos recap uh, uh, every single month uh and uh so it's not even really that extended uh but and we are uh, there's some domestic american uh, stuff that we want to talk about but also since the last time he was on the main show not one of the sopranos bonus episodes uh we were doing a tour of sort of um you know reform and revolution and counter-revolution and american imperialism in latin america and we have a couple updates to uh, to do on that, which are actually as strange as this feels to say, good news.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and a little bit of troubling news, I think, on the horizon in, in Bolivia and, uh, you know, mingling with the good news because it's never, the fight is never over. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, no question about that. Uh, so yeah I since uh, we are getting to uh, the uh, the very end of, uh, of March and my book comes out on May 1st uh, uh, May Day uh, which is uh, Labor Day everywhere but the US uh, uh, since uh, you know since, since we live in uh, in kind of the uh, the homeland of, uh, of global capitalism and so even though it's to uh, commemorate you know the, the May Day, uh, day was was picked to commemorate American labor struggles you know it's the uh, it's the only place where it's not but uh but it's uh but that is canceling comedians uh while the world burns uh and you can uh you can pre-order it uh, from uh all the usual places that you can pre-order books from I don't know if we have the graphic uh but yeah I gotta get
2: a graphic up there but we will have a snazzy graphic by next all right, all right,
1: all right. We'll have a snazzy graphic <laughs> next week. Uh, so it's canceling comedians while the world burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Uh, you can get it from all the usual, uh, you know, places. You know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, whatever. Um, but uh, if of the place that uh, that I would be happiest if you got it was Red Emma's, a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore that you can uh, order books from online. So that's Red Emma's. Uh, dot, uh, dot org. Uh, and, and I guess since, since we are getting to, uh, to the, uh, very end of, um, all right, there's a graphic. So we are getting to, uh, to the very end of, uh, of March. Uh, and so it's out in just a little over a month, you know, so, uh, so it kind of seems like a uh, time to, uh, to start talking mm-hmm. about it, you know, a little bit, um, uh, a little bit well a little bit longer yeah i know i saw somebody in the chat saying that like it it seemed uh very far away when i first announced the publication date trust oh, me it. uh to me too the the gears of uh, book publishing grind uh agonizingly slowly sometimes you know would have would have really liked to be able to put this out in like october but uh yeah you know but it's uh sadly it it never um none of this ever gets any less relevant, right? This like what um uh Michael used to say about uh the Mark Fisher's essay uh, Exiting the Vampire's Castle, uh, which is which is one of the sort of pieces of source material that's that's referenced a lot in this book. Uh, you know, and I think he even says this in Against the Web, uh that you know, they uh, the most depressing thing about Exit in the Vampire Castle is written in 2013, but it always feels like it was written last week. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, since this stuff uh absolutely uh absolutely never ends, you know. And and, and Mark what-
2: Fisher is more acutely aware of that, I think, than anybody. I mean, not just Exiting the Vampire Castle, but I mean capitalist realism, just all of his work really, this kind mm-hmm. of uh, you know, this like dystop this dystopic kind of place that the left find itself in and you know our, our powerlessness and struggling against that and you know trying to uh strengthen our critiques and not just you know cancel people away <laughs>
1: no exactly yeah i mean I, I think that um yeah i mean i think like capitalist realism sometimes feels like uh you know maybe things are finally starting to shift just a little bit you know on that front uh and then sometimes it feels like not at all you yeah know? depending on the angle you're looking at.
2: And sometimes it feels like you're just kind of feeding into the capitalist realism by feeling like maybe things are going to get better through, (laughs) through the more reform oriented measures. And you're like, how are we just kind of trapped in this matrix that, you know, is like kind of a a self-fulfilling prophecy over and over again, that that keeps keeps us in these cycles of hope and despair. No, for sure. I mean, look,
1: you've got to, I mean, you're not going to get from uh, the neoliberal hellscape that we live in to, workers control the means of production you know without some social democracy in between but it's also like if you know anything about left history of the 20th century i mean that could also be a road uh, to nowhere i mean like we've certainly seen that script play out too you know there're absolutely no guarantees but you know capitalist realism sometimes feels like very slightly less relevant sometimes depressingly exactly as relevant
2: mm-hmm. uh, excellent it, really, it really peaked in the at the end of the obama era i think kind of you know um yeah. Well, no, I mean, no,
1: for sure. Even, yeah.
2: even with Obama's like obsession with The Wire as like his favorite show <laughs> that ever existed and stuff. Yeah, uh, which, but- is also,
1: which is also really interesting, you know, because because Obama presided over, um, you know, like this, this just hellishly neoliberal, you know, reaction to uh, the 2008 crash. Uh, that you know there was there was the uh, there was the bailout, you know, for uh, for people on top. Uh, and, um, you know, and there was some kind of half-hearted, uh, stimulus, a lot of which was taxes, tax cuts. And then he, and then, you know, the gap between the rich and the poor actually expanded every year of Obama's presidency. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was doing like, uh, and literally as we talked about before, like the Obama administration response, uh, to, uh, like the, the plight of like laid off coal miners in Appalachia was to, uh, was to put up a few technology training centers. So essentially to say in policy terms, stop whining and learn to code.
2: Yeah, no, pretty much exactly. And then obviously embodied by kind of the, the Rahm Emanuel, like literally saying on that, like we watched that when Kenzo was on, like literally saying on that fucking talk show, like, well, at the end of this crisis, people are going to have to learn to code. Like.
1: (laughs) no, exactly. So uh, whereas, um, and yeah, I mean, the wire uh, like was you know, brilliantly about like exactly the kind of like capitalist decay that, you know, that Obama wasn't addressing in any meaningful way, you know, like, yeah,
2: uh, it, it he, did... he literally, he literally was Garcetti or whatever, like the, the, yeah, 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 the reform exactly. minded guy who who comes to power, which is really funny that that was Martin, like actually based on Martin O'Malley, who ran in 2016 at the end of the fucking Obama era and obviously didn't go anywhere, but yeah, <laughs> um, so it's, no, it's such but, yeah, no, it's, such, that, it's such that, a
1: weird. Yeah. O'Malley is such a weird, sad figure, and of course and of course yeah. uh after you know uh 2016 was uh was his big chance to uh, do that before he was completely tarred by you know the Freddie Gray and all of that. But um yeah. but yeah, so uh so you know, we're obviously still, you know, living very much of the capitalist realism landscape. And uh and actually the vampire castle, honestly, if anything. Uh, you know, feels uh, a little bit more relevant uh, all the time, and mm-hmm. the two uh, and the two are very closely linked, right? So let me let me just take a minute on this uh, because I think so. For for people who aren't familiar, who haven't read the essay, you should read it. It's available for free online at Open Democracy. I think is the website that they have for free. Um, you know that uh, actually the Vampire Castle and it's um like the opening of the essay is like about uh you know he doesn't have the word canceling yet you know that that hadn't you know entered into widespread circulation in uh in 2000 uh in 2013 uh but um but you know but the the beginning of the essay yeah show me the first the first couple lines uh, is um this summer, I seriously uh, consider withdrawal from any involvement in politics, exhausted through overwork, incapable of productive activity. I found myself drifting through social networks, uh, also kind of a data phrase, I guess, uh, feeling my depression and exhaustion increasing. Quote, left-wing, unquote, quitter can be, often be a miserable, dispiriting zone. Earlier this year, there were some high-profile Twitter storms in which particular left-identified figures were called out and condemned. What these figures had said was sometimes objectionable, but nevertheless, the way in which they were personally vilified and hounded left a horrible residue, the stench of bad conscience and witch hunted uh moralism. The reason I didn't speak out any of these incidents, I'm ashamed to say, was fear. The bullies uh were in another part of the playground. I didn't want to attract their attention to me. And then he sort of continues to give this brilliant analysis of like what's what's going on, right? Like and and you know how like how these kinds of um know twitter cancelings work you know how they sort of play out in the specific dynamics of like the left uh there's uh where everybody involved you know presumably you know thinks of themselves as some kind of socialist so allegedly uh believes in structural solutions to problems but in practice everybody seems to be more interested in moralistically going after uh Mm -hmm. individuals i should also add i wrote an article uh about this in jacobin um last summer last summer uh called so you're still Be- so you're still being publicly shamed uh where
2: yeah, that was a good article i yeah. remember reading that when it came out
1: thanks yeah no i i um and that like the point that i make it there is that like it's a mistake to think that this stuff just arises out of like leftism or you know even like vaguely progressive sentiments or anything uh it's it's a disease of neoliberalism it infects mm-hmm. the- entire political spectrum you can find high profile examples uh like the uh, lindsey stone case that uh john ronson mentions in his his book so you're being publicly ashamed that my article is about uh like lindsey stone who uh who is this girl who worked for a uh you know basically she worked with uh with adults with learning disabilities and uh she and and her friend uh, jamie were uh, uh were were both uh, like really good at their jobs. They were very popular, you know, with, with the, you know, the students, their parents. Uh, but, you know, when they were on their off off hours, they tended to like take like jokey pictures and like post them to Facebook. And, uh, and one of them, they were on a, uh, they were on a trip, you know, for the, the organization they worked for to, um, to Washington, D.C. They were at Arlington National Cemetery. And it's the kind of thing they do. Like there are other pictures where, uh, like one of them takes a bit is taking a picture of the other with a cigarette in front of a no smoking sign somewhere. Stuff yeah. like that. And so stuff that
2: everybody, everybody does as, as you know, when course. they're younger, like, you know, at, it's like small town shit, honestly, like, you know, like there's nothing really to do. So you're kind of oh. going around <laughs> seeing how many things you can take pictures in front of that are like joking.
1: Exactly. And so like they were yeah. at the, in front of the sign that said, uh, silence and respect. And so it's, it's Jamie's take the pictures. This is one, unfortunately it was of Lindsay and she's uh, and she's going like, right. You know, like, like obviously pantomiming, pretending she's yelling in front of the sign says uh, silence respect. And she had this giant, like just massive online pile on. There were thousands of people like liking this Facebook page, fire Lindsay stone. She was fired. It completely destroyed her life for like a year uh, if you look at like the messages that were being exchanged between the people piling on her, it bore a weird resemblance to the woke version of it, you know, just just with different politics.
2: Yeah, and and you're seeing that you're seeing a similar thing right now, kind of with uh, Little Nas X, that the Old Town Road guy, and you know, releasing a song with a lot of like devil imagery in it, and it's kind of a similar thing. I mean, it's much more ridiculous, obviously, because it's absurdist, you know, conservative christian like outrage which obviously everybody knows is performative at this point and everybody knows is is you know like they they don't have any kind of moral high ground but it's the same kind of thing like it's the same kind of rabid cancellation from the right you know what i mean that that no
1: no exactly and you can find and you can find like like sort of center you know centrist center left examples of it
2: oh more than more than any other i think group
1: yeah, probably more than any <laughs> other group you can find the centrist versions of it uh which you know i could rattle off examples of that for the next hour but i get too angry well yeah. the
2: Lindsay, the Lindsay stone one is particularly bad because you know she's just a regular person who's like a regular you know, person yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Like, like like all she did was like post a picture to facebook that like 20 people would have seen in the normal course of things uh which again although it's not as unusual i think as a lot of people tell themselves it is that that kind of thing happens so i don't think i, it's see, a it,
2: I see it constantly just in my local community like and I don't think it reverberates past that. But like, just in my local community, with somebody doing something or writing something that other people find, you know, I, like something funny or like something, you know, irreverent or even even serious that people start piling on. And you know, I, I just imagine like what what it would seem like if that reverberated out of out of that local uh, that local area. I guess you know what I mean. But like, but at the same time, like you know, it's the same thing in, in a miniature scale. Um.
1: Yeah. No. Exactly. So. Uh. And and yeah. Like there are tons of examples that like actually the examples that piss me off the most are from centrist because uh because oftentimes the targets were like socialists or Bernie people you know but mm-hmm. uh, like there's uh Kayvon, Who's is a Iranian graduate student who I follow on Twitter and during the primary uh, there were like Elizabeth Warren people who who were like mass tagging his post to like try to get Georgetown to fire him. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just,
2: I, yeah, liberal, so. liberals seem to go after the job for like first, like you know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's, it's, like it's, it's
1: like call the manager instinct for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, uh, so I think that, like, again, I think that, like, this what's sort of called cancel culture, I actually think the slightly older term call out culture is probably a little bit more apt, you know, but uh, whatever you want to call it, I think it's a general disease of neoliberalism. You know, combination of the bad incentives built into social media platforms, mm-hmm. uh, neoliberal atomization, such that a lot of people feel most connected to others online. Uh, the fact that uh, the fact that we uh, that often ta- that like most Americans work in non-unionized workplaces uh, where they're very um, uh, where like the threat of being doxxed is like. Something people really take seriously, you know, because because you could like most people could easily lose their job because you know however the employer feels about it, they just don't want the controversy. Yeah, uh, and, and enough,
2: it was it was Nando that kind of made me think about this um a little bit more when I, I don't remember what happened with somebody in media saying something like vaguely racist, and they asked like how would you how would you handle this in a unionized workplace, and it was like well the union could vote and they could decide you know like. To consequence, or like that there would be a consequence, or that they would stand up like in stand in solidarity with the person. But like having the bosses incentivized to do it is just the absolute worst way to keep people employed. And I hadn't really thought about that until he made that point specifically. So it's interesting that we're talking about this on the same day that, um
1: no, for sure, right? Like and there's a very um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff, like I think a lot of the worst effects of this kind of um, cultural trends, uh, like are I'm not saying it would all go away if we had better labor laws and most workplaces unionized, everything, but people would have a lot more protection about it, which by the way is yeah. one of the reasons that I think it'd be good for the left to take this stuff more seriously. Cause unlike conservatives or like those sort of like center right libertarian kinds of people who talk a lot about this, like unlike those people, we actually have solutions, yeah. it, uh, but also, um, so, I think so the I think the general phenomenon is a disease of neoliberalism that impacts the whole political spectrum. But, like a lot of what I'm concerned with in the book, specifically is like, okay i'm I'm particularly concerned with the ways that this this intersects with the specific pathologies of the left because I want the left to win, right? like like and I think there's a real problem that we have. And I think this is what Mark Fisher is getting out in the Vampire Castle essay when these kinds of general trends uh, intersect with the way that the left is right now. Because right now it's been so long, like before like 2015, it, it was so long since it was even imaginable that you get like a decent social Democrat like Bernie Sanders in anything like that kind of prominent position that he was in like even that never mind any more radical changes just
2: Well when yeah. he announced when he announced for president and I didn't remember this until um a few months ago when I was like rewatching like John Stewart clips um when he announced for president it was in the park and I think less than like less than- No no that's right there, there, were, yeah. there were,
1: like you watch that clip it's amazing I I know it's linked in the um uh Jacobin article I wrote uh, right after Biden was inaugurated, you know, but, uh, but yeah, you watch that clip and it's, uh, he's literally, he's talking to like maybe 10 reporters. Uh, he's standing outside. Like he obviously just left, uh, the Capitol to like go outside and talk to them. And he literally has his speech folded up on a piece of paper in his pocket. And he takes out the piece of paper. He's like, look, I don't have all day. You know, I, I can only take a couple questions. <laughs> so, like That's how he announced the first time.
2: So, well, not that there'll be many questions. I don't, I don't predict, but
3: you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. RJ is backstage and he says he was, uh, he was actually there. So we got to ask him about that. But, uh, but I have, um, so it's been such a hellscape for so long, right. That it, it has just been, you know, Anybody who was a leftist before 2015, basically, like came up at a time when there was just no realistic prospect whatsoever of any sort of like even social democratic anything really in the US.
2: And And as someone growing up, as someone that grew up through that, like you know what I mean? Like, it, I had never thought that there would be anybody like Bernie that. Oh, for, for sure. I, I remember my mom being excited about uh, Dennis Kucinich. That was kind of the closest <laughs> thing
1: that, uh, that we had. I, I, she was, I remember, well, actually mine too, but uh, part of that was because we're Croatian. So. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I had like, so anybody who came up in that, like you just have this, this view, right. Where you, you like this kind of deep exile from real world politics and real world power, uh, where it's it's inevitable, I think, under those circumstances, that you end up thinking of pol- of like left politics of radicalism as as something as not as a serious attempt to change the world because that's just not on the agenda. Uh, instead, you end up thinking of it as a kind of symbolic performance of your commitment to
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to certain radical goals, or you know, or or if you're just just sort of. You know, like people take use this phrase like taking a stand. You know, you're taking a stand. You don't expect anything to come of it, but you're taking a stand. And and the problem, I mean, is- Whole
2: Foods politics, basically, like you know, before everybody knew that they were controlled by Amazon and everything. Like the the the, the individualistic taking a stand, like sustainable version.
1: No, of- no for for yeah. sure, and even. Though- <laughs> of themselves with radicals or socialists. That's basically what they were doing because that's all you can do, right? It's like the, it's like the point uh, Danny Bessner always makes about how Chomsky and I know he like I really admire to Noam Chomsky, but like there's never a point in Noam Chomsky's books where he was like, okay, if socialist government took power, here's how it would handle this foreign policy situation or whatever, because like the thought would never arise, you know, you just wouldn't yeah. bother because because it's so distant from reality. And the problem is if you're in that mindset where. You end up thinking of politics as the performance of individual commitment rather than it's a serious attempt to change the world. Then the intersection between that and these more general cultural trends we we're talking about ends up just being this just awful toxic
2: brew. Well, social gonna, media in that case it's, is it's, where it's, you have power. Like, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. And, that, and and so you end up spending all of your time demonstrating your commitment and and going after other people who in your mind, you know, aren't really as committed as they should be. And, you know, yeah. and, and moralistically condemning them and using that to sort of score points within the tribe. And the whole thing could not be more alienated to most, the vast majority of people that we need. a hundred
2: percent alienating to people that are like already, you know, fully invested in it. Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like the, the thought that one, one step or one bad tweet could totally get you piled on by, and, and like the, the more, I guess, you know, the better you do it stuff, the more likely, like not the better but like the closer you get to any form of power, like the more likely that is, which is totally right. Like incentivizing to say the least.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, my, one of my all time favorite examples is always, and don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, um, like Jenk Uger's politics are not my politics. And, you know, they're, their criticisms of him. I'd agree with, um, al- although, you know, uh, Anna seems to have come around nicely, you know, but, uh, yeah, uh, through
2: Michael, um, through through Michael. Yeah, yeah.
1: for sure. Uh, yeah, I'll love Anna, Uh, but, um, uh, but I think, um, uh, especially cause she's a GTA patron. So therefore one of the best, <laughs> in the world, but, uh, you
2: have the best people.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> But no, I, I really am a huge fan of Atticus Sperry. But like, but like, Jenk, you know, is, is much more of a, you know, just a liberal, right? But he has, um, but uh, the thing that, um, you know, the, but there was this this thing that keeps happening once every few years where people are mad at Jenk for one reason or another, and they rediscover these twenty year old blog posts uh, that that he wrote, uh, where you know he like says dumb young guy stuff about women and you know things like that. That he's
2: conservative, by the yeah, way. He
1: literally wrote as a young conservative. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, young conservative sees the world in conservative ways. And it's like decades ago, right? You know, and, and, and he came around, he saw the error of his ways, he stopped being a conservative, he became a progressive, he abandoned those politics. He said numerous times, you know, he's, he's renounced what he said in those things. But it's like
2: even there- announcing it too far, like even, even going bending over backwards too far i think to renounce yeah. Uh, himself
1: <laughs> yeah so 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 think about the message that sends to people we want to win over hey if you disagree with us right now that even if we convince you and you come over to our side we reserve the right to a uh, hold the fact that you once disagreed with us against us fo- against you forever like yeah. that's a hell of a recruitment pitch i can't imagine who wouldn't want to join that team uh so anyway uh it's it's you know get into a lot of different you know subjects of the book we'll talk about it uh more next week again if you and want I'll, to and it. i'll
2: i'll i'll start reading it bef- like you know before it before it drops so i i you know i'm more engaged in these conversations you know it's been hard to, to find time to read lately but you know
1: yeah uh yeah <laughs> uh yeah well because you are because you're a producer for 200 shows so uh yeah, yeah um so in any case, uh, so like I said, we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, if if you want to pick up, you know, pre-order a copy. It comes out on May 1st. Uh, the place, again, I'd recommend, you know, uh, if uh, if you want to get it from a worker-owned bookstore is Red Emma's. That's redemmas.org, uh, which is where I bought th- my copy of this book,
2: Socialism. <laughs> flawless, uh, flawless transition. <laughs>
1: So uh, we're now joined uh, by uh, RJ Esco, the uh, host of uh, Zero Hour, uh, and uh, and somebody who uh, people uh, who watch this channel have uh, have seen before because a, uh, a while back uh, we did a review of uh, of his discussion with uh, Matt Taibbi uh, about uh, about Herbert Marcuse. Uh, and, uh, and since, uh, and since he likes the, uh, the philosophy stuff, you know, thought we'd have him on to talk about a book that he mentioned to me, uh, at the end of when I was on his show that he was, um, uh, that he was reading, which is, uh, why not socialism? Uh, so, uh, so I want to talk about that. Uh, but first I I'm curious cause you, cause we were talking about that, uh, Bernie Sanders 2015
5: announcement, uh, earlier and you, uh, you said you were, uh, you were at that. Well, you know, I worked for Bernie. I was his writer and uh, and editor in 2015-2016 for the 2016 campaign. So I was employee number five or something. So he started talking to me in January of 2015 about working for him. I was in California. He was out there. We had breakfast in February or whatever. I moved to D.C. to work for him that day that he gave that press conference before the press conference. He bring I, I go into his office and I realize he's like interviewing me for the job I've already accepted and, which is strange and uh, I, I remember it ended with him saying like at the very end all right good 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 he goes but uh, I gotta ask you this question he says uh, social media and all that is big now. And uh, uh, do you understand that stuff? He says, because I got to tell you, you don't look all that young to me. And and I said, well, I have a two part answer for you. One, yes, I understand it pretty well. And two, now I got to sue you for age discrimination. (laughs) And he says, sue me, sue me. I got to sue myself. I don't understand this shit. (laughs) So That was the day that he went out there and, you were right. I, th- I think the headcount was probably twenty-five people or something like that. And he literally—it was like everybody wanted to go, especially Bernie. He was like, "All right, you know, if you got questions, yeah, I guess I'll take them. But otherwise, I'm out of here." You know, that was his attitude, which was <laughs> the best part of Bernie. You know,
1: definitely. Um, yeah, that that like uh, that when the New York Times was deciding who to endorse and uh, for the 2020. Uh, right. Primary, and they did those little interviews with everybody they put out, and like in 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 his, he didn't quite tell them to all go fuck themselves, but I mean it, it, was, <laughs> it was it was somewhat along those lines.
5: All you right, know. one other along those lines, one other quick Bernie story. One of my favorite moments, my my all time favorite moment in the campaign was when he trashed Henry Kissinger in the debate. Oh yeah, this, this was like that's my man right there. But. The, one of the high moments was when he did a town hall with Rachel Maddow, and I was with the press guys and uh, in the audience. And uh, she, her question was, "If you weren't a politician, what job would you like to have?" And his answer was, "President of CNN," because you wouldn't see the kind of crap on there that you see. Today. And the whole press, uh, you know, continued just burst out and laughing. You know, it was just a like classic. It was such a great, you know.
1: That. Uh, so. nice. Yeah. Uh, well, um, on the uh, on the subject of um, uh, of uh, old and sometimes funny Jewish men, let's talk about G.A. Cohen. Uh right. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Exactly. Let's, who uh, never
5: thought their ideology would become mainstream and potentially have a pathway to power? Although I'll say that G. A. Cohen thought about it. You know, he definitely thought about it, and so did Bernie, of course. But you know,
1: yeah, yeah, no, for for sure. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think somebody, I think Cohen is somebody who uh, who did like actually spend a lot of time in some places grappling with uh, with the obstacles uh, to. Uh, like the political obstacles to, uh, to achieving socialism, uh, even though he spent most of his time thinking about this sort of, you know, abstract, uh, normative uh, case for socialism. So on that subject, let's let's just watch a little clip of uh, the man uh, himself. So this is from a lecture that he did called uh, Against
6: Capitalism.
4: Jerry, Jerry is, is professor, professor of, of social and political theory. theory
0: and fellow of All Souls, Oxford. In tonight's opinions, he argues that capitalism deprives people of their rightful share in the world's resources and that it frustrates the satisfaction of fundamental human needs. I'm going to start with a story, which was told by the American cartoonist Al Cap. The story is about a creature called the Shmoo. The Shmoo was 10 inches high, something like a pear in shape and a beautiful creamy white in color. It had no arms, tiny feet and big whiskers under its nose. The Shmoo had only one desire to serve the needs of human beings and it was well equipped to do so. Its skin could be made into any kind of fabric. Its flesh was edible, its dead body could go brick hard and be used for building, and its whiskers, well, its whiskers had more uses than you can imagine. If you looked at a schmoo with real hunger in your eye, it dropped dead in rapture because you wanted it, after first cooking itself into your favorite flavor. Well, since they multiplied rapidly, there were plenty of schmoo's for everybody, and they even looked good in the environment. Almost everyone approved of the schmooze. But some people weren't keen on them. The rich capitalists hated the schmooze. Since schmooze provided everything people needed, nobody had to work for capitalists anymore. Because nobody had to make the wages to buy the things capitalists sold. And so, as the schmooze spread across the face of America, the capitalists began to lose their position and their power. And this made them take drastic action. They got the government to tell the people that the shmoo was un-American. The shmoo was causing chaos, undermining the social order. People weren't turning up for work and they weren't going to the department stores to buy anything. Well, the government propaganda convinced the people and the president ordered the FBI to gather the shmoo's and gun them down. Then things went back to normal. But a country lad called Little Abner managed to save one female and one male shmoo. He carried them off to a distant valley where he hoped they'd be safe. Folks ain't yet ready for the shmoo, Little Abner sighed. But Little Abner was wrong. Folks were ready for the shmoo. It was only the capitalists that weren't. The capitalists didn't like the shmoo because it gave people independence. And when people don't depend on them for work and for goods, capitalists lose their privileged place. People haven't always depended on capitalists. They never of course had schmooze, but they did have land and the things they get from schmooze in Al Cap's story, they got by working the land in pre-capitalist history. It's true that they didn't keep everything they produced on the land. Monarchs and their hangers-on and various lords and ladies were usually able to take quite a bit of their product but the people didn't depend for their survival on any superiors until after a long history of forced expropriation and plain and crooked dealing they found themselves without any resources for producing things except their own labor and in order to survive they had to hire themselves out to capitalists who now had all the other resources so we got a new setup And in this new setup, workers sold their labor and capitalists bought it. And the buyers treated the sellers as nothing but sources of profit. So when the buyers didn't need all the labor that was offered, some workers were denied employment. And since they had no land or schmooze to live off, they became beggars and vagabonds and inmates of workhouses, or they simply wasted away. Well, of course, things aren't quite that bad now. Capitalism isn't as pure and ruthless as it used to be. The dispossessed workers defended themselves by uniting in trade unions. And the coming of the welfare state, with its public provision of necessities, means that workers don't depend for everything they need on finding someone who wants to buy their labor. The trade unions and the welfare state were savagely resisted by the capitalists but they've come to stay. Now, advocates of pure capitalism describe it as a system in which people freely exchange their own private property. Socialists deny the freedom and fairness of that exchange. They complain that some are able to bring vast assets to market while most people have nothing to sell except their own capacity to work. That's the socialist complaint.
1: So uh, he goes on from there to, uh, to talk about, you know, different possible uh, responses to this complaint and, you know, why he doesn't find them from convincing. There's a good bit where he, uh, where he talks about how uh, if, um, you know, where he, he makes the, uh, he makes the points uh, that uh, people who talk about, you know, self-made capitalists, you know, built up businesses, you know, by, by their own hard work uh, and, and, you know, oftentimes this doesn't describe the reality in all sorts of ways, but it says that, you know, any story like this is ultimately a story about getting what you got through free market exchange so it can never justify, uh, the ba- you know, the basic distribution of wealth because the question is, okay, well, if you got what you got from exchanges within the market, then how did people who had wealth before you get it and then how did they get it, how did they get it, how did they get it, and eventually it's going to trace back to something that you could have to justify uh in uh in different ways so it's it's a uh i mean it, it's a little bit of an offbeat you know way to start it out with the uh with the schmooze you know but i i think it i think it makes the point in a, in an unusual way in a way that i like
5: well you know what I, I i loved about that first of all i'd never seen him before till you sent that clip out and I didn't realize what a goofball he was. He was actually perfect for this media moment. I think if he had made YouTube videos, they would have been insanely popular. And oh, yeah. uh And uh, uh, the the schmoo- you know. I, by the way, I remember the sh- being terrified, very upset by the schmooze when I was a little. Kid and they were in the Sunday paper because they would show they would cut off a piece of themselves as meat <laughs> and offer it to you and I just thought this is a more terrifying grotesque thing but uh, but what he does with the schmooze is a lot like what he does in Why Not Socialism which is he takes uh, a, you know he an analogous situation analogous situation that in someone else's hands could easily. Be it jejune or simplistic or worse, and spins out of it. I love the way he goes from the schmooze to basically, you know, four hundred years of British history from the fourteen hundreds <laughs> and the enclosure movement to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, Hobbesbaum could have written fifteen books about, you know, <laughs> what he put in there with his little schmooze story, and that's really an one aspect of his brilliance was his ability to take these mundane and even silly analogies and create pack a lot of information and and uh, propositions and everything else into them. I think that's a real gift,
1: oh, absolutely. and uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right about how well he would have done on uh, on YouTube if he lived later. Uh, he he has. There are actually a bunch of videos of him that you can find uh, doing impressions and things like that. Like that they, mm-hmm. were are just like ripped from like old like home videos uh, from uh, from uh, parties. Usually, I think at um, Eric Olson Wright's um, or John Romer, one or one of the other of them, uh, their living rooms. You know, these these people were all uh, analytic Marxists. You know, meaning that they were people who. Uh, where the way that they did philosophy was analytic philosophy, where you try to be very precise about the arguments, but they were arguing for uh, for Marxist things. So uh, actually on that on that note, you know before we get to why not socialism, I, I do want to show you uh, I do want to show you one of these because it's it's a um, even though he's an analytic philosopher, I think it's I've shown this on here before, it's very fast, but it's a uh, it's a brilliant parody of of how analytic philosophy can often sound, uh, to uh, to people uh, outside of it, uh, so this is his impression of uh, Gilbert Ryle.
5: <laughs> what a great idea! My late
3: supervisor in Oxford. Thinking and meaning are the same
0: kind of thing, but they're not the same type of thing. Because kinds and types are different sorts of things, even though they're alike in nature, in sorts and
3: natures, though similar in character, different in dimension, because characters and dimensions, though akin to one another in form, are contrasting
0: in significance. There's a distinction between nature and character, and there's a distinction between character and significance. But the difference between nature and character
3: is a different kind of difference from the difference between character and difference.
0: But it's also the same kind of difference. Thinking
4: that a different kind of difference is different from the same kind of difference, then it can also be the same.
3: It is being caught up in some ancient prejudice and being unable to think blah, blah, blah,
5: blah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, and, and one last uh, last one. This is Cohen uh, uh, doing an impression of a uh, classical German philosopher talking about freedom. Yeah, uh, about
0: freedom. Presented by uh, a distinguished German
3: political philosopher. No greater freedom in hear for a man than absolute blind submission to an unjust law. The ability, the ability to pick and, and choose how and to say to opt, to select from something from from some s- sort of quagmire of different festering possibilities is the merest caprice. And blind submission to a just law makes too much of what they call this, how to say, rational choice, opting, selecting, to be sufficiently removed from caprice to count as deep freedom. Absolute abject submission to a cruel tyrant is the safest form of liberty.
5: These are great.
1: Yeah, I I remember when I showed uh, the late Michael Brooks, that first one, uh, he said that he was was mad because Cohen was dead, so he couldn't have him on his show. Uh, Oh,
5: he's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, I understand that feeling, certainly. And by the way, if you haven't ever seen it, uh Beyond the Fringe, which was a comedy, you remember the early 60s in Great Britain. Uh uh one of the guys, I can't remember which one, uh, did an imitation of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell had this on the BBC, these uh uh reminiscences. I think it was called Portraits from Memory or something like that. And he he does Bertrand his own Bertrand Russell portraits from memory. It's hilarious. It's it's very funny. You'd appreciate it. If I nice. can find it, I'll send it to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I would I would definitely like that. Uh so so yeah, I mean he's he's a very uh you know Cohen uh you know was was a very funny guy uh and and he's also like a very um like a really uh, precise philosopher, uh, you know, in in the way that he like cuts up distinctions between different ideas. And he, uh, and yeah, he also has that gift that you were talking about that he, you know, the same way that he's using the little Abner schmoo thing at the beginning of that first video. Right. In, uh, in this book, uh, he, uh, he starts out by telling us uh, talking about a camping trip. Right. So, uh, so he, he talks about like how, if you go on a camping trip, uh, like the way that that typically works, right. You know, a bunch of people go on a camping trip together, uh, and they, you know, and if you, during the day, you you know, like if you split up spaces, you know, put up your tents, if, you know, so, you know, people go fishing and then other people, uh, you know, cook the, you know, the fish later over the fire, uh, nothing, um, you know, there are no market mechanisms in sight, right? In fact, uh, the way that people relate to each other when they're going on a camping trip uh, really resembles, like, a very, um, like, the sort of, like, a really ambitious vision of, like, a very advanced stage of socialism, you know, like like, like what, uh, uh, you know, Marx is talking about and like, the critique of the Gotha program. It's just, you know, from each according to their abilities, you know, to each according to their needs. Uh, and, in fact, not only that, right, But he makes the point that in that context, we would find it extremely offensive if anybody tried to introduce any market mechanisms, you know, said, okay, Right. uh, Yeah.
5: Right. And I think, yeah, one of the takeaways, I reread this book, you know, before uh, tonight, is he really didn't like market socialism. You know, he really was not a fan. Uh, He's so genteel about it that it took me, uh, our second reading, I think, to pick up on that, because he's very nice about it, but he's basically saying it's an accommodation with uh, uh, an unpleasant human quality, and it's a way to approach it differently, and by market socialism, I believe, you know, uh, that his definition would basically encompass worker-owned businesses competing with one another in a in a marketplace type situation, uh, I mean that was my read of his take. I, there are different definitions, but that was my read of his take on it. Um, and uh, obviously, that would be a huge step forward from what we have today. And he acknowledges that himself. But to me, if I may, just read one thing from it, Ben. It, to me, it was uh, yeah, it, It's almost his like mission statement for the book. But being Cohen. He doesn't get it till the coda. He yeah, doesn't yeah. tell you what he's doing until the end. You know, he's like, but he says, this this is where the market socialism and a number of other discussions take place. He says, any attempt to realize a socialist ideal runs up against entrenched capitalist power and individual human selfishness. Of course, we all know that politically serious people must take these obstacles seriously. And this is, this to me is where he states his mission, but they are not reasons to disparage the ideal itself. Disparaging the ideal because it faces those obstacles leads to, and then, you know, his, his epithet, confusion. Disparaging Mm -hmm. the ideal because it faces those obstacles leads to confusion and confusion generates disoriented practice. I love, I just love that what he's saying here. There are contexts where the ideal can be advanced, but is pushed forward less resolutely than it might be because of a lack of clarity about what the ideal is. I just can't tell you how much I love that. I just think that's a great mission statement for all of us in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I think that what he says about market socialism at the end is really interesting, you know, uh, but um, yeah, in, in fact, the specific example he gives of uh, of a sort of vision of market socialism is a book by uh, uh, his friend, um, uh, John Romer, who I believe uh, at least one of those clips, you know, was, was in John Romer's living room,
4: uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know.
1: Uh, or Romer might have been the cameraman and it was Eric Olin Wright's living room, but it was one of the two of them, uh, you know, uh, but, um, you know, but as somebody who's, who's a close sort of uh, intellectual collaborator, uh, but it's it's a, it's a, like, yeah, I mean, he doesn't, he's not satisfied with it, you know, but he he thinks it's a, an important step in the right direction. But I want to I get to that, but he has... Um, but he sort so he starts out, starts out by by giving this 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 vision of the way that the camping trip uh, that like and just like any camping trip anybody would go on right and actually there's a very funny line earlier on or you know when he sort of transitions from there to say like look I don't even like camping trips like I like you know, <laughs> hanging right. out like the common room at, you know at, at Oxford and you know whatever you know like you know but uh, but you know in that context right and um you know, in a camping trip, anybody uh, would really resent somebody who tried to introduce uh, market interactions in there. Somebody who said, "Look, I'm better at fishing than everybody else is, so I'll let people have my fish, but you know, I'm going to charge you, or I'm going to demand that you have, you know, I get some special accommodation that you know for you know the campsites or something, something like that, right? Like, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't stand for anything like that. Uh, and and so he says that what this establishes. Uh is not, of course, you know, that that socialism is, is possible or even desirable at a society-wide level. You know, he thinks he still needs to argue for all of those things, right? But he says that at least in some contexts, we would all vastly prefer to live as if we were living in this incredibly advanced socialist society. And anything that smacks of capitalism or even markets, we would just instinctively uh reject. And so then the question are. Well then the first question is are there relevant differences between a camping trip and society as a whole that would right. mean that we right. wouldn't want to live this way and society as a whole uh or that maybe we would want to but we can't and he also tries to bring out what it is that he thinks the um like what the sort of principles for how to organize a society that you would kind of glean from thinking about that camping trip would be mm-hmm.
5: Right, and and uh, you know he alludes to maybe this is his training as an analytic philosopher. The one thing uh, that I would have loved to hear just a little bit more about is he alludes to as part of that argument about the ideal of the camp camping trip socialism, and alludes to later on, but doesn't really expound on is the qualitative aspect of it—that it just feels better and more fully human to be in a community of people that is serving one another because they appreciate, he, he definitely spells it out. I don't want to you know, give him short shrift or do him an injustice, but I feel, you know, he had this architecture of an argument uh, that was beautiful and I'm very fond of it, but, but uh, uh, the camping trip, perhaps because he hates camping, uh, hated camping. uh, He doesn't really spell out what's really great about, you know, camping or any other adventure with other people, which is you're all in it together. You know, you share your. You know, if you if you dump your accidentally dump your dinner in the fire and it burns up, you don't get to eat it. You all share the misfortune together. If it comes out great, you all. Sh- so, uh, but yes, I mean, I think he has a great way of setting up his argument, which is if it's if I under if I'm interpreting it correctly, if this is an ideal way to conduct. A camping trip, that impromptu community. And by the way, he does a brilliant job of lampooning capitalist arguments of various kinds by placing them in this context. Well, (laughs) my grandfather found this pond and had the foresight to stock it with fish, and now if you guys don't pay me, you'll go. You know, all that was great. But you know, he he basically does it very logically. If this, if we agree, this is a good way to conduct a camping trip. Why is it not a good way to uh, to establish a society? Let's go through the possible reasons why, and uh, take uh, take them one by one. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, I should also say, parenthetically, that um, you know, he spends a lot of time here talking about equality of opportunity, and uh, and what if the you know along with yes, it would have been wonderful if uh, if, if Jericho would have lived long enough for uh, for YouTube. Uh, it also would have been wonderful if he'd lived long enough. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that Peterson wouldn't have done it anyway. But if if he he could have done what Zizak did and uh, gone back to his native Canada, you know where Cohen was from, and debated Jordan Peterson, uh, because uh, you know Peterson always talks about. How you know he thinks it's like this totalitarian left thing to to talk about equality of outcome, uh, you know, whereas like the okay liberal things talk about equality of opportunity. And a lot of a lot of the first part of the book is spent breaking down what we could possibly mean by a
5: of opportunity. And and he makes a distinction,
1: right. you know, between and there are
5: multiple modes of equality uh, of even of opportunity has its own various, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. So so he says. Uh, that there's uh, what, he, what I think he
1: calls like bourgeois quality of opportunity, which is uh, which is just the sort of baseline uh, of that you expect in any modern society, uh, you know, since the French Revolution. I thought he yeah.
5: said, I'm sorry to interrupt, ben, but oh. I thought he said, I, I'm sure it's a trick of my memory and me projecting my own uh, uh, vocabulary on his writing. I could have sworn he said neoliberal version of, he oh. probably didn't, he, he probably okay. didn't use the oh. word neoliberal, but... But I know what you're talking about. This yeah, version yeah. Of yeah, that right. uh, You know, we'll all start at the finish line at the same time, is basically what he was saying. But the neoliberal version is, uh you know, the guy or woman with a broken leg gets no, you know, there's no accommodation <laughs> for them or for the people who haven't eaten for three days or whatever. But you all get to race together.
1: No, exactly. So, yeah, that, that sort of neoliberal version of equality of opportunity, or I think he just says bourgeois equality of opportunity, is – uh, yeah, no accommodation for the person with the broken leg, but everybody gets to race together. So, uh, so you have all it really means is that nobody is prohibited from competing, you know, for, uh, for, you know, resources, whatever uh, on account of like what, you know, race or caste or whatever they're born into. Right. Uh, nobody is like a landed peasant, you know, who's who's legally prohibited from leaving their feudal estate. Uh, but At the same time, there's no attempt whatsoever to compensate for all of the advantages or disadvantages that anybody has. You're just pretending everybody could run the race together. And then there's the slightly better version, you know, which is, he says, uh, left liberal equality of opportunity, Um, you know, which, uh, I don't know, maybe we could think of as sort of moving from like the uh, uh, Joe Lieberman uh, wing of the Democratic Party to like Elizabeth (laughs) Warren or somebody, right? You know, which is, which says uh, left liberal equality of opportunity, uh, is um, uh, is have uh, you make an attempt to compensate for social disadvantages? Like he gives the example of Head Start right. programs, uh, and of course that's great. That's that's a big improvement over the first one, uh, but it still leaves out a lot of things. Uh, it still leaves in place a lot of advantages and disadvantages different people could have in-market com- competition that ha- that are completely outside of their control. Uh, that if you, you know, because, uh, in fact, I don't know. Do you, uh, are you familiar with uh, Freddie DeBoer's book, The Cult of Smart? You've seen that? Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So I, I think like a lot of- Which like is like- an
5: important- I thought of Freddie's book uh, actually in rereading uh, uh, this book as well for the same reason I'm sure that you brought it up. Uh, you know, and and, it, 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 and for those who don't know, Freddie's book, The Cult of Smart. Freddie basically makes the argument that um, even you uh, know uh, this 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 fixation on intellectual ability uh, is innately unjust in a way because it, it, it innate. Ability Uh, intellectual ability does not define your worth as a human being, should not necessarily define your place in society. And that, you know, and related to that, you know, whenever I hear the term level playing field, I always have the same gut reaction, which is who says we're playing a game? You know I mean? (laughs) Who called this game anyway? It's your game. It's not my game. So, and, and in his own way, Cohen gets to that too, I think, which is, uh, you know, why do you have to compete based on skill or number of hours worked or whatever in order to "quote unquote" compete? You know, why is it a competition? And uh, do you agree with that? I mean, that's that's my, no, my, no,
1: my for, take yeah, for for sure, right? Like, and, and I think what uh, what Freddie DeBoer is really getting at in that book is is the way. Like, I think one way to think about this is like if you're born like people who might become successful members of the, you know, professional managerial classes in the United States in 2021, uh, if the same people were born in like a, um, uh, ancient society, that's like governed by a warrior caste or, you know, that, that you right. can, you know, then that they would be hopeless. Right. You know, cause, cause, cause they wouldn't have the physical abilities they would need to do that. Uh, but you know, since they happen to be born with, uh, a certain set of, um, And even people who really are genuinely, obviously, we don't live in anything remotely resembling a real meritocracy. But even, but Freddie's point is even to the extent that we do, that's still incredibly unjust, you know? Because if you happen to have have the particular cocktail of like cognitive abilities and dispositions that happen to be rewarded by the educational and career hierarchies of uh, Western societies in 2021. Uh, then like the idea that you should have good outcomes because of that and people who, who have different, you know, abilities, skills, predispositions, et cetera, uh, shouldn't, right. You know, that, that, that it's okay that they have far more financially precarious lives, don't give as much respect, et cetera, is unjust in exactly the same way that only people with the physical size and strength to be members of that ancient warrior cast would have good lives, you know, would be unjust. And so this seems to be Cohen's criticism of left liberal a uh, quality of opportunity that it's still, even though we're doing things to try to make up for social disadvantages, you know, we we still have all of these other baked-in disadvantages just to the rules of the game, like you're saying, right, and right. So, so what? That's, he the, says, game. Yeah, that's <laughs> the game. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. So, what he says is the kind of equality of opportunity we should care about is what he calls socialist equality of opportunity, which means that uh, basically, and this is uh, like a. Uh, Michael Albert was was on uh, the show earlier this year, and you know this is kind of one of the principles in his vision of participatory economics that he laid out. You know, it's it's the same idea that Cohen has here, that um, you shouldn't like inequalities and in distribution should really only be about things that are under your control. In other words, how much or how hard you choose to work. Uh, because right. sure, different people might make different decisions about. How much they care about, you know, having stuff versus how much they care about having leisure time, and that's fine, right? We can we we can have differences in you know in uh, income because of those things, but not uh, not these big differences that are due to factors beyond your control, like whether you're the sort of person who's going to be good at school or you know or or good at ascus rise through you know corporate
5: hierarchy. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Or good. I mean, I, I thought at one point also in reading this section about, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Dorisowicz's book, uh, Excellent Sheep, about teaching Ivy League students and how, you know, one of them just said we got here by being excellent sheep. You know, we were just better than everybody else at staying up all night to memorize the answers, you know, and by answering the essay, writing the essay, question answers not the way we thought they should be answered, but by understanding the kind of answer that was wanted. That's how. That's what we're selecting for now in the, in our version of meritocracy. Yeah, I mean,
1: totally. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but and this is the part that I think addresses what you were bringing up earlier about how, uh, like what's what would be good, you know, like 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 why we value. Having camping trips be like, you know, um, this this kind of you know impossibly advanced post market social society, rather than having camping trips, uh, you know, be modeled in that capitalist way. You know, my grandfather discovered this fishing pond. You know, uh, right, all, right, all that, that stuff. And so he says, okay, socialist equality of opportunity. That's kind of a quality of opportunity we should care about. But he he doesn't even think that's quite sufficient, because he says, okay. Uh, that's that gives us the kind of a quality of opportunity we should care about, but there are some there are some kinds of inequalities that we might have reasons for, to to not want that aren't about that right that like even that might even satisfy socialist equality of opportunity but are just a matter of somebody makes foolish or short so short sighted choices and then you end up right. having very different life outcomes and he says we should even we shouldn't even allow too much of that because uh, because he thinks that that goes against
5: community which I think is what you were talking about earlier. Right exactly you know and he gives the parable of the grasshopper and the ant uh, where as he points out and that's the old parable where you know the grass I guess I always get them confused with the grasshopper doesn't want to do any work the ant labors away and then the ant has a nice house and the grasshopper is stuck in the rain or whatever I don't remember but but the point being, it was a morality tale about you'll work now and be parsimonious, and you'll. And, and, and he he talks about that in the context of this limitation. And of course, what even Cohen doesn't address is, you know, there's some people. Some first of all, just labor for labor's sake is not necessarily how a human life should be spent, right? And right. and and you sh- you, your housing should not depend on your willingness to perform. Uh, you know, repetitive tasks, uh, stacking straw into a house. So uh, number one. And number two is it doesn't consider the fact, and I'm probably going off on a tangent here, but doesn't consider the fact that different people, uh, human beings are complex, you know, organisms, different people are cognitively, psychologically, and in other ways, less capable, they may very well Want to have a nice house made of straw like the like the ant, but they may have very valid reasons of trauma or cognition or anything else why they can't do it, and to sit around saying, "Well, you didn't build your house, so we're going to let you starve." Not only violates the fabric of community, uh, but of simple common decency to one another and the kind of empathy that says, "I understand you might have reasons why." You couldn't do what I did, so here I'll build an add-on room. You can stay there. You know this—that should be the ending of the grasshopper and the ant story.
1: No, exactly. And uh, and that way of interacting with the grasshopper and the ant, you know, is why he's worried even about some inequalities that might satisfy the, the socialist equality of opportunity principle, because he says, uh, you know, he gives this nice simple example about if if somebody who owns a car. Uh, and, uh, they, there's, there's some day when like his, his wife needs the car. And so he has to take the bus. And if he sees somebody on the bus, you know, who he knows who can't afford a car, he's not very well going to say, Oh God, it sucks so bad. Like I have to, I have to take the bus <laughs> today, you know, cause uh, because of course you know you're not going to talk that way in, you know in, in front of that person and so uh, he says there's a sense in which you know you're not like in a relation of like you know community with that person you know you don't you're not related to them in other right. words people would naturally relate to each other on uh, on the camping trip uh, so uh, so he this is and yeah he has you were referring to this earlier you know he he, he thinks that uh market mechanisms of any kind in his view are 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 uh, are a problem because to the extent that we're interacting with each other in the market uh we are uh we're seeing uh we're being motivated you know by these bad motivations we're not as you as you said earlier we're not serving each other uh because we derive satisfaction for both serving and being served by one another you know we're we're right you know we're serving he- each other.
5: yeah Right. And he points out that although we have yet to devise, and, and I love this line of thinking, he was oddly deferential to economists, I thought, in it. But uh, I love where he was going, which is he basically says, just because we haven't thought of a way of governing a large-scale economy or society based on different principles and competition and greed, it doesn't mean we should stop Trying to figure out how to do it. I mean that, that it was the gist of his message, and then he mentions uh, Romer. He mentions uh, another economist as well who are kind of tinkering at, around this issue in different ways. And then he says, "Well, maybe the economists will come up with well." well I would argue, maybe may or may not be an economist that should that will would come up with this. But I love the fact that he's thinking about uh, market. Replacements for market mechanisms that might draw on different kinds of human instincts, like, and this is again gets back to my opening read from the Coda about uh, the clarity of the goal that uh, you know that if we ideally want to create a situation, a world, a society where complex interactions, he points out that central planning is a challenge in large complex economies and so on. If we want to create other forces to run an economy in a society based, let's say, on altruism, community, what have you, uh, we should be thinking about that. We shouldn't just assume it's impossible or that even if it's possible, it's politically unattainable. We should give it thought. And this is why, like the last time you and I talked, I've been you know, nattering on about why the left needs philosophy, right? Because these are exactly the kinds of things we should be thinking about, not the Overton window of, you know, what the maximum minimum wage we can get in the next eight years, you know, I mean, if that's a yeah. that can, can relieve suffering, but if we're not thinking about the world as it ought to be, who the hell are we, you know, I mean, we're just, tink- we're just, Tinkering, at, you know, Remember Moloch in the movie Metropolis? We're just like kind of tightening the nuts and bolts on Moloch while bodies are being thrown into the fire. That's no way to live. Yeah, no, exactly.
1: Uh, so, so where he where he ends up coming down on this, um, you know, because he all the ways that somebody might have listened to our summary of Cohen so far and said, okay, that's nice, but he's being terribly naive because you know they're all. Um, are all of these deep problems with with having, um, you know, with with having societies that that don't have all these market mechanisms, and you know, what about human nature and this and that? Trust right. me, he's thought of all that. He addresses it, you know, in, in the book, right. uh, and he, and I don't mean he addresses it in the sense that he gives like knockdown arguments that all those objections are definitely wrong forever, but uh, but he is he's incorporating all of those concerns into his discussion. You know, he he says, uh, look, it could be. Right. You know, that uh, that we can never get all the way to my ideal, you know, this this kind of, you know, camping trip sort of, um, uh, you know, critique of the Gotha program, advanced communist kind of future. It could be that we'll never get there for one of several reasons. One could be about, you know, human psychology. Maybe we need, you know, he talks about how it's bad that what motivates us in markets is greed and fear. Uh, but he says, you know, maybe we do need those things, or maybe we need them to some extent, you know, maybe, uh, uh, and and it could, and of course, there are obviously massive political obstacles, and uh, and he, he's also very frank, I really like this part of the discussion about uh, logistical uh, obstacles, that in other words, um, this is kind of what you were referring to with The Economists, you know, we don't necessarily know what this... Um, what like this really advanced version of socialism would would look like in practice? You know that the sort of central planning that existed in the Soviet Union and societies like that had all sorts of problems, uh, and you know he's not like some people on the radical left will say like oh you know well maybe that was because they didn't have democracy you know but uh, but I, I think Cohen is uh, you know and they'll sort of be very vague. Right. About what the better, more democratic you know, version of it you know, would, would look like, you know, that oh, we'll have planning for human needs and it will be democratic and we'll have all the good things, and none of the bad things. It's kind of three or four sentences and doesn't really give you very much of a picture of, uh, of how it worked. But he's not he's not like that at all. You know, he, he says, um, look, there is a big problem here. You know, of course, you know, we can't just, you know, uh, replicate, you know, sorts of planning that, that didn't work well uh, in, uh, in, in, the past, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming to, to have all the answers here. I'm not even claiming, you know, that, that'd be possible, but he thinks it'd be premature to give up on it, you know, and, and this is where he, he discusses John Romer, uh, his, his book, uh, future for socialism, which, um, uh, which I read, uh, I read last year, uh, actually. And, and in that he sort of Romer has this idea for how a market socialist society could work. It's actually, I I mean, I almost don't know if I would even call what Romer's describing uh, socialism, although I think it would be an improvement over what we'd have, but like what I sort of think of Romer's idea of how socialism would work as like uh, Green Bay Packers socialism. You know the way that the Green Bay Packers don't have a team
5: owner. You know they they just have uh, right, right, sure, yeah. You know, uh, well, it's uh, kind of liberty mutual socialism too if you think about it because the mutual insurance companies were supposedly owned by you know the policyholders, but it's it ain't socialism. I mean, it's better than having Jeff Bezos run the cosmos, but you know it. I, I haven't read Romer's book I, I think I will I'm interested in it but uh you know Richard wolf who's a uh, you know regular mm-hmm. on my show and I'm probably had him out too but yeah. uh, he's very big you know his website is democracy at work he's very big on these mechanisms but I think you know I've never asked him about it I should i uh, I think if you pressed him probably he would go to the point of saying yeah it's an intermediate step but um yeah, I think yeah. It yeah. Has so to be, right. You know. Yeah. So 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 what Rober's describing
1: is uh, a society that, like, in the broadest outlines, will be just like the kind of corporate capitalism we have right now, but with one crucial difference: that uh, you wouldn't have uh, shares of, of corporations that like anybody could buy; they could buy up as much as they want, you know, anything like that. Uh, everybody would just uh, be um, vested with a certain number of shares at birth uh and and they could uh and yeah the same way like the packers you, know, you could only have however many shares you could have like a you know uh that you know it's, it's very limited right make sure nobody has too much power within it uh and you can uh and you can sort of trade them with each other right you know but then then when you die they revert to the state that that's that's romer's idea which which is a really interesting idea but there are a lot of things that socialists would want uh that that doesn't deliver so uh even short of and
5: also yeah. you read the book and I haven't been, but I do want to answer yeah. this question because I I found Cohn's description of that uh system very unsatisfying because it seems I, I read this and I thought, well, all this does, it seems, is allow people with a very specific gift of figuring out which ones to like barter for which ones or whatever. Uh, to gain enormous influence in society, and I mean, there are many reasons why the people who run society now are bad. But one of them is that we've turned given so much power to people. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. One of the reasons is that we've given so much power to people who uh, are have this almost. Uh, uh, natural ability in strictly one area, which is the accumulation of wealth and an obsession with pursuing that accumulation, but don't really care about anything else. It seemed to me from Cohen's description, like this plan would enable those people to gain power in a different way. Maybe they, maybe they wouldn't acquire heritable wealth, but they'd still do what they get off on in a way that might harm the rest of us.
1: Yeah. Right. So, um, uh- you know, I mean, they would never build up like very many shares because you only have a certain number, right? You know, you, you can only trade them for, uh, uh, you know, so you, you'd have like, they might be more or less profitable, right? But, you know, you'd never get more shares, you know, through the uh, through the process. So I'm sure it would be vastly more uh, egalitarian compared to what we have uh, today. As you say, you know, Jeff Bezos running everything. Uh, you know, Romer makes some interesting points in the book. Like he brings up the first Gulf War. And he talks about how, even though arguably at that point uh, attacking Iraq, uh, uh, you know, like would have some benefits for uh, everybody because gas prices would go down, you know, in that situation in 1990, uh, you know, most of the public opposed it, you know, because none of them were benefiting that much from it. You know, you'd have to be like an oil executive to uh, to really be benefiting enough from it, you know, to, uh, to have um, – you know, to, uh, uh, to have that incentive that, you know, that you'd be willing to, to support the war. So like I, I buy some of those arguments, but, uh, not only, you know, but it also doesn't get, you know, I, I think if you stopped there, we'd all still be working in workplaces very much, you know, like what we're used to. So yeah, like that would be the obvious concern about like Romer's, you know, Romer's model that we still don't have as, as our friend Richard Wolf says democracy at work, uh, much less the sort of post-market, you know, community you know that, that Cohen Cohen is talking about, uh, and and I think it would be really interesting if Cohen had, uh, well, I mean, if he, you know, if Wolf's book, Democracy of work had been published enough earlier that he could have talked about that, right. or like, um, you know, David Schweikart uh, has a uh, has a book called After Capitalism. Uh, where he has a model of market socialism that is, um, you know, that that really emphasizes, you know, worker uh, workers control, you know, at the uh, at the workplace level. Uh, my suspicion is that if Cullen had read one of these books, he would have said, uh, well, he would have said a variation of what he said about Romer, because even right. about Romer, he says, look, this is a great step in the direction of the kind of goal that I have in mind. I don't know how we fully achieve it. You know, we still have to figure that out. So meanwhile, for sure, let's do this. Right. I just don't think we should give up on going further than that in the direction of our ultimate goal. And so my suspicion is that if he'd read Schweikart or Wolf, he would say, uh, well, this is a little closer to or It's still not good enough, you know, but uh, we should still, you know, again, he's not claiming that he has like a, a model planned out, right. You know, for, for what, for how to, um, realistically and efficiently, you know, have a society that would, that would satisfy all of his desiderata. He's just saying that, you know, we shouldn't prematurely give up on ever, on ever achieving it. And at the very least it should be our lodestar that the way we should evaluate these models is by how close they get us.
5: Yes. And, um, and again, I'm mean, I'm going to refer back to that mission statement at the end. He really wants clarity of the, uh, of thought about the ideal. And he wants us to be thinking about what the ideal looks like, not just drawing on models of the past, and whether it's the Soviet model or or the Adam Smith model, but thinking about new org- ways to organize human society, and uh, socialist ways to organize human society and human economy. And I think just in the ambition and simplicity of that goal, there's something very. Admirable because you know, I, I was reminded at a couple points just by his sort of almost uh um uh cautiousness at which he brings up the socialist ideal. I had to remind myself that he was writing in 2009, right? He was right. he was writing before the resurgence of the you know socialist ideal, so he's kind of like, I know it may sound crazy to you, you know, there's a little bit of an overtone with him. And, uh, and, and just a couple of points, but nevertheless, he said, he, he, his theme to me continues to resonate with, think clearly about the ideal, never forget what you want the ideal to be. And then, and only then can you talk about pathways and what we can do in the near term versus long-term and all the things, you know, the left broadly defined from liberalism out, uh, and neoliberalism on out often suffers in my view from the, the disease of pragmatism, you know, mm. a sort of self-limiting pragmatism, right? Where we think that we sort of move our own Overton window to the right. Because, Well, I'd love to, you know, I, I'd love to help. It, it, it was poignant in the video when Cohen says, well, unions and the social welfare state, they're here to stay. Well, mm. stick around Jerry. Cause uh, Good you don't want to see the sequel. trust me yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know whatever it is that 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 the left is guilty of well, you know we can't do too much for the unions. maybe we can get the pro act passed, but you know, but let's not go crazy here, you know, as opposed to his contrast of if all you can do today is pass the pro act yeah sure pass the pro act, but never lose sight of the idea. And that, to me, is such a, is a thing of beauty about him. Yeah, no, I I completely
1: agree, and and I think that um, you know, and, and I'll even say, right? I mean, full disclosure. I mean, I, I wrote a uh, article in uh, Jacobin last year called uh, "Capitalism Isn't Working," uh, but what would a viable socialist system uh, look like? Uh, Where in you know, wherein like when I was trying to think about okay if we could, you know, have like a successful, you know, revolution tomorrow, right, you know, and, and we and we had to design what would come afterwards, what would that be, right? What would that five minutes after capitalism society look like? And it's, it's definitely one where there's still markets, uh, but uh, we at least don't have a capitalist class, you know, a class of separate owners. We at least have democracy at work, you know, like uh, Wolf is talking about, and I tried to talk about different, you know, real world precedents, you know, that, that would show us that, that, that kind of socialism you know is uh is possible um but uh despite that like i i think i find myself completely agreeing with where cohen lands in the book because uh because he i think this uh this sort of socialist equality of opportunity tempered by considerations of community uh does seem like you know what we should want you know yeah. as far as the the distribution of uh, of resources go to the extent that any kind of market mechanisms in, in, of any kind get in the way of that, that is a respect in which they're somewhat undesirable. Now we can talk about whether we can come up with a realistic way of of you know of doing away with that undesirability without having other bad consequences, and that's a complicated discussion. But as far as the as the normative question, as far as what the ideal should be, I mean, I, I you know I, I think that I think Cohen is very
5: convincing. Yeah, I do too. And, and, and lovely, you know, I mean, I I would add that, you know, I mean, I find him, and may I say, and no offense in contrast to, you know, a number of writers in the philosophy field yourself definitely excluded from that, but I I find him aesthetically and emotionally pleasing to read, I guess I would say because of the clarity of his logic, the clarity of his language, the, the, sort of tender heart that I sort of sense underneath all of this. And the video, again, made me think, yeah, I was right. This is a tender hearted guy. Uh, All of that attracts me to him. But what attracts me to him most of all is his sense uh, of unfettered and unquenched idealism. And trust me, you know, uh, you guys were talking before I got on about, you know, giving up some of your idealistic dreams, give it 40 years of endless neoliberal battering, which is basically my life story, you know, I get back to me. So, you know, to get, see somebody like that, who's been a socialist 40, 50, 60 years, or whatever, I don't know how old when he died, he was when he died, early 70s maybe, but um, a guy who'd been at it that long, and to the end of his life, never really wavered from his, ability to dream in a fundamentally of a fundamentally different society to me is an inspiration
1: yeah i guess he was uh 68 uh when he died but yeah it was he was a lifelong socialist like his his parents were members of the canadian communist party uh and you know he he was later you know critical part of you know some of the legacy of you know Capital C communism, but I mean he clearly would never lost sight of the socialist ideals. Uh in Why Not Socialism? He quotes a uh, a song that he used to sing like as a kid and like party, you know, like uh you know, party like summer camps or something. I'm not sure exactly.
5: Uh so uh so yeah, I mean I, I think oh, that's that is right one. he does. That's right. And it, I read the words and they didn't seem very singable to me, but you know, they were like very <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't <laughs> he must have gone to Unitarian summer camp or something where they sing that kind of thing. Yeah. But, oh no, I think he was a red diaper baby actually. I think he oh,
1: was, yeah, a yeah. Baby. No, he was most definitely yeah, yeah most yeah. definitely red diaper baby. Uh do you uh do you know Nando Vila? Richard? What's that? Oh, do you know Nando Nando Vila? I do not. Okay, so uh this uh
7: uh Richard oh, Nando. Hi, hey. how's it going? How are you, How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Glad to meet you. So I see you have uh, China
5: China Mielville's book, October, on the Russian Revolution. I do.
7: Which is great.
5: I read it cover to cover. And I decided my next band's name was going to be the Switchmen, because he talks about the story in that book about how the Bolsheviks were called the Switchmen, because the belief was that they lived in the Switchmen's shacks while they were on the move from one place to another alongside the railroad tracks in Russia, I thought the switchback, that would be a good name for a band.
7: That is a good name. No, the book is amazing. I mean, I I, I knew only the kind of very broad strokes of what happened in, the, in between February and October. Um, and uh, that book just made it sound really exciting. Like I kind of oh, wanted yeah. to be there, you know, as scary as it probably was at times, it was definitely like, uh, it definitely made it very gripping and exciting. Yeah definitely highly recommend yeah, it. yeah. uh
1: and, and you just happen to mention two things uh richard one was the um you were talking about the cohen quote with the song lyrics and you were trying to imagine you know singing them like what the tune would be that would make that work and the second thing was saying that something would be a good name for a band so this is why even though we're going to take a quick intermission you know we after we say goodbye to you before we start talking to uh, nando that's why i wanted both of you to be on because i know uh that uh you had um uh, so, uh, something I actually wasn't familiar with about your, uh, your background, uh, is that, uh, J. Andrew World, our graphic designer who, who introduced us, uh, you know, mentioned to me, uh, Richard, is that you, uh, is that you were a musician. So you actually used to play at honky tonks and stuff like that.
5: Well, I was a, at one point I was a country singer working my way through college playing at honky tonks and violent little dives and uh, dude ranches and the Catskills and all that stuff and uh, and then i was like around the whole new wave punk thing i was a songwriter and i had blondie's
7: manager blondie and i had the same manager um the classic country to punk pipeline yeah you know There's You've done a million times
5: yeah, yeah yeah from elvis
2: onwards so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i live literally 15 minutes outside of the catskills
5: oh whereabouts <laughs> if I may? Uh, of course i know it really well I, yeah i was born in utica and uh, but I I spent a lot of time around the sort of Kingston Woodstock saga. So yeah,
2: guess, uh, yeah, yeah my, my my dad just moved to Woodstock. He's kind of a, I mean he grew up here like in the '60s, so he's like
1: my really brother
5: cool. just moved there too. So yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so so I, I did want to have uh, Nando on we'll give, during the uh, music discussion because I've, I've seen, uh, you know I, I've often seen uh, Nando's like several guitars in the background of uh, oh, yeah. of different phone calls. I was going to try yeah. to show you I mine. Got,
7: I got my Strat okay. there. I got uh, let's my, see. my Martin Acoustic there. You know.
5: Let's see if I can do this. You see those?
7: My, my Telecaster oh, yeah. Thinline, oh, nice, my sweet. Deluxe.
5: There's a Telecaster there, too. A 52 Custom Shop reissued oh, Telecaster. Was, a 69 Gibson 355. A Stratocaster... A Puerto Rican cuatro, a mandolin.
7: The cuatro is an amazing instrument.
5: It's fantastic.
7: It's, it's the uh, sound of the cuatro is one of the beautiful. incredible.
5: It's really yeah. beautiful. I do not know why it's called a cuatro since it's five courses, 10 strings in total. Yeah. But call it cuatro anyway. It's okay with me. Yeah. It sounds great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the acoustics are over here. Persian saws and a couple
7: acoustic guitars and a banjo, so yeah. Oh shit, this is very embarrassing. I wrote that song. Oh, that was you?
5: <laughs> there you go, buddy. All right, all right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, in any case, uh, we should uh, we should have you. Uh, Sometime when you're back, Richard, we should have you back when um, when David Griskin is here. You know, because because uh, he actually was was doing a uh, a regular segment on the show uh, for for a while. He's kind of gotten busier now, but he uh, uh, called Outlaws and Revolutionaries, where we talk about country music for a little bit at the end of every episode. So uh,
5: so we we should I, will, I talk with him about country music any day. I I know my music history. I'll tell you that I, I will. I'm not shy about that. Whether it's early rock and roll blues, but especially country and sixties soul. Uh, I am good on that too.
7: Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. All
5: right. Well, um it is so good to uh to talk
1: to you again, Richard. Uh, we are gonna do this very soon. I look forward to it very much, my friend. All right, All
7: right. nice to meet Thank you, Nando. You too. Pleasure.
1: All right. It's RJ Esco, uh the uh, the host of uh Zero Hour Uh, And uh, in uh, just a moment, uh, we are going uh, to uh, be speaking uh, to our uh, good friend and comrade, uh, Nando Vila. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, we uh, we are now joined by Nando Vila, the uh, uh, co-host of uh, Jacobin's Weekend Shows, and he's he's on here every month to talk about The Sopranos, does some other stuff. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, does some other stuff.
7: Ones. Where do you get your music? I'm sure this is like your most commonly asked question. Where'd you get your theme song? Because I uh, really yeah. like it.
1: Yep, uh, J. Andrew World uh, gave uh, gave that to us. So it's, I mean, obviously he's not playing like every instrument or whatever on the session, but, you know, but that's that's something that he... Uh,
2: Cole James Cash gave it to us. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you, yeah, you, you said J. Andrew World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make
1: oh, sure James that... Cole. Okay, Cole James Cash. Oh, yeah, I, I just to make sure that... it's an original. I, I, yeah, yeah, it's original. You didn't, I'm, like, I'm take it off it,
7: some free library or something like that. No, 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 yeah.
1: It's a uh, wow, Jandrew World. Okay, I'm, I'm attributing all good things to Jandrew World. Yeah, Cole James Cash is what I meant to say. Uh, so, um, who, uh, who? By the way, uh, yeah, the people with um, the people who are associated the show with three names. You know, we're all uh, we're all running together in my, my yeah. head now. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. But people Cole with
7: three names are Serial Killers, or uh, as part of the Give Them an Argument show. It's one of the two. Things. <laughs> yeah, Every Serial Killer has three names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. yeah. Um,
7: Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: <laughs> yeah, non serial. killer. Although he's enough.
7: innocent. Everyone knows that. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah. Fair enough. Uh speaking of Cole, by the way, I should say, uh, don't it hasn't quite started yet, but is going to um uh should have a Go me or something for him soon because he uh after Oh, oh shit. it's up right now. Yeah, because he had um so he actually, after spending his whole life, other than when he was in the military, you know, in uh, California, uh, he just moved to Canada. He married a Canadian woman. And, you know, he hasn't been there for very long at all. And he uh, slipped on the ice and shattered his leg. Uh, and uh, at least it's in, you know, uh, Canada. Of course, he's not a Canadian citizen, but they still forgave the, uh, you know, the medical bills. Uh, but he has, uh, but, you know, but he's still... You know, but the ongoing equipment that he needs to you know to take care of him in the house, and his wife had to take a bunch of time off work to take care of him. You know, so got this. Uh,
2: I'll uh, I'll throw it in the in the description too, so that you know, in yeah. case People um want to donate to that. Yeah, man. Um, that's rough.
1: Yep. So anyway, uh, so yeah, while we're thinking about Cole, you know, should yeah should definitely throw that into the description. Um, yeah. but. Um, but Hey, we don't, uh, we were going to, um, we we're going to do Bessemer earlier and we didn't have, end up having time, uh, Forrest, Do you have the, uh, do you have the Bernie clip?
2: Yeah. Uh, hold on. All
1: right. So,
2: um,
1: yeah, last, uh, you know, last time, um, you know, last time you were on, uh, we were, we were doing a little tour of, uh. Um, you know, reform and revolution and counter-revolution and imperialism in Latin America, and I do want to—I uh, do want to do a couple of updates on that. You know, while you're yeah. here, but, but first I want to do some uh, some, some domestic stuff. So let's let's uh, let's start with our our father, Bernie.
3: The reason that Amazon is putting so much energy to try to defeat you is they know that if you succeed here, it will spread all over this country. And I just had a few minutes to chat with some of you about the heat. It's too hot. It's too hot. I get messages on my
5: computer saying,
3: do not touch the fan, do not turn the fan on. We do have hands. They're just not using it. The fact that when you get a 30-minute break, it takes you 10 minutes to get to the break station and 10 minutes back. They explained to me that working in this facility is like a 10-hour workout.
5: The way that we work is meant to mentally break you down. A
3: man who's worth $150 billion, who will not provide air conditioning, who penalizes people for being a minute late. If you're one minute late, it yeah. takes a whole hour of unpaid time. It's all right. You lose your whole hour if you're five minutes late or one minute late? All the Amazons around the world going through the same thing. Think about a woman having a heart attack and falling out behind you because she's so hot and tired.
0: There's this older woman who was stationed next to me one night. Woman passed out. She passed like, out. She had a heart attack. It's time for
3: us to start
0: taking a stand. And fight. There's no leadership.
5: There's no communication.
3: With the union coming in, I think they'll be held accountable. The way I feel about it is that they feel like we're just a means to an end, nothing more. If you're alone trying to stand up to Jeff Bezos and Amazon, you ain't going to get very much. But when you're together, Standing up together, you could sit down and say, you know, working conditions are not adequate. Wages are not adequate. Birmingham, Alabama, if you pull this off here, believe me, workers all over this country are going to be saying, if these people in Alabama could take on the wealthiest guy in the world, we can do it as well.
7: How can you not love that, man? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean,. Uh-huh. And, and as as you know, I was, I was talking to Forrest about it before we uh, before we went on, uh, and you know, and, and I think really the way that he like puts forward like like the amount of airtime that workers get, you know, in in that clip, you know, is 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 kind of remarkable. You know, it's it's not what most politicians would do.
2: Yeah.
7: You know. They, yeah. No, have you get the feeling that it's not the first time like sometimes with other politicians when they deal with something like this you get the f- sense that they're they're like saying those words for the first time but like bernie understands very much the bread and butter like you know the, the little tricks that companies will do like put the break station far away um so that you have to spend a lot of time getting there and you, you have less time for break things like that like he he he's it's not his first rodeo he's done that a million times in the past and you know it, it just with some with some other politicians you get the sense that like when they're forced to do this kind of thing for whatever reason um, that they're just like saying these words for the first time. And it's, this is not the case with Bernie. Um, I mean, it's why we love him, right? Because he's got that, um, in, like that kind of built up credibility um, over, over the years. Um, and yeah, he just understands that, that working people, um, if you just let them, if you let them, if you give them a bit of a space to to um, to both speak and exercise their rights and their power and stuff, like that, they will they will always surprise you uh, for for the better. Um, and I think most most other politicians wouldn't trust that. Like they they'll be like completely. Um, wary of including quote unquote real people like they everything will have to be very kind of manicured and prepped and they'll have consultants you know do media training on all them and shit like that and, and he just uh, he just doesn't do that
2: yeah and and putting it in the context of like the larger struggle I think um, in the labor movement is really cool and I, I think that he's done it and like yeah, the, first, turn-
1: the first thing he says is if it succeeds here that's gonna succeed elsewhere
2: Yeah. And, and Nina Turner recently gave a speech where she was like, you know, it's not just, you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for, you know, workers throughout the whole country because it really does feel like this is kind of an end point. Like if this doesn't go through, if eventually like the pro act doesn't go through, like it's really going to put workers in a bad fucking position. Like we're going to not, we're going to be fucked kind of, you know what I mean? Like it kind of feels like we're at a point where these, like these corporations are getting so large that this is kind of the last stop on a, yeah. On, on I guess the labor train. Um
7: yeah, I mean I'm in I'm in California and the the, the election night results in California with the both the defeat of prop twenty two or the passage of prop twenty two, whatever the it's always confusing yeah, yeah. as to whether prop. it's yeah, yeah. the bad thing that happened with prop twenty two and the yeah, bad yeah. thing prop. that happened with prop fifteen. Um you know, the the, the Prop twenty two was was designed to combat a a law that passed in California in the state legislature and was implemented and was the law of the land eighty five. five. Yeah. Yeah, which the Pro Act is modeled after. And and it just in like the most stunning display of just brazen corporate power. They're just like, Yeah, we're not gonna we're just not gonna adhere to that law and then uh, you know, a judge said no, you have to and then they were like, "Okay, we'll put it up for a vote," and then it and then it was defeated. Uh, so it, that was just so utterly depressing. That like just this feeling that even when we tried to exercise some sort of democracy over these corporations, that they were just too powerful; they could just defeat it um, uh, through sheer force of will. Um, and what's going on in Bessemer? I mean, it just it really does feel like you said for us, like this just. Either the beginning of something, or maybe the, I don't want to like over dramatize it because, mm-hmm. but it does kind of get that feeling of it's either the beginning of something, the seeds of something, or possibly the end, uh, or the beginning of a very, yeah, long night, I, I,
1: you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it it could you know, you could have some like really frustrating defeats. You know, like I, I think we'd have plenty of more frustrating defeats than the win victory. You know, and I think especially yeah. with the the pro act, I mean, I think you've got to assume that because that is. Unfortunately, very unlikely. You know that that's that's going to uh, this going to pass anytime soon. Um, the thing is getting like-
2: multiple times. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, for sure. Yeah, for I,
1: sure.
2: I, it does feel like a, a turn. Like the tide is either going to turn or not. Like just in general. Right. Like no, no one labor struggle, but just in general with all of this.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm glad you brought up uh, Prop 22, Nando, because because uh, I th- I think that that is. Like what happened there, at least, you know, what I heard, you know, from people like, you know, my brother who lives in California, uh, that the way that that, uh, that got passed, I think, is is super revealing. And, and I think, yeah. you know, kind of ties into a discussion that, that hap- that's happening in the left right now that we're talking about a little bit over the weekend, you know, which, uh, because, you know, there was, no. A lot of people who voted for that didn't didn't understand at all what they were voting for. You know, there, there was there was a crazy yeah. amount. Of, you know, corporate propaganda uh, that this uh, people being told, oh, this like helps. You know, Uber drivers. You know, this 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 is somehow helping. You know, these these gig economy you know workers that you know by not giving them the rights of workers and you know classifying them you know as as independent contractors. Uh, and a lot of people had that vague idea; they didn't really know very much about it, and is you know, they sort of mindlessly voted for it because they'd sort of heard that. But I think the really revealing thing is that that could happen at all, because I think if, like, on so many other issues, I don't think that could happen that way, right? Like, like if you because like if you had a law that was like some socially conservative group was going to try to get on the ballot in California, that uh, would have been like made it harder to get an abortion or would have like screwed over gay and trans people somehow or something like that. No matter how innocuous the the wording of it was, no matter how like sort of uh, no matter how much they said like, Oh, this is the, you know, this is the good rights for everybody, you know, act or whatever proposition. um, Like just regular liberals in California would have known better because, because like everybody would have known that would have been on their radar. Uh, but with something like this about workers' rights, it's just not uh, on on a lot of these people's radar. Uh, because, because, and, I, and I think that that does – I think if you try to dig into why that's the case, I think that has to do with, like, a certain currently very hegemonic kind of liberalism that yeah. is really tied into the sort of worldview, the concerns, the conception of justice that you tend to get – in what is often uh referred to as the uh the pmc the professional managerial class
7: well even more kind of in on more sinisterly um just the blatant uh buying off of identity-based political advocacy organizations like the naacp and various latino groups um, in california um, they all supported prop 22 like the naacp supported the bad version of pro- like the whatever was what it, Prop 22 passed or didn't pass, whatever. Yeah, the Prop 22, yeah it I, it's like it's yeah, it passed. So the, they yeah. all supported Prop 22. Um, and you know, using it as this, um, using the language of racial justice to justify it. Um, well, they straight up had is, ads you know, that were
2: like black workers, this is going to hurt black drivers, right? Like, I it's I, I
7: insane, it's more than um, like every years, right, and yeah, I mean, like, that, that is like that is like every left critique of identity politics, like crystallized in one perfect test case, right? This, um, the, the, you know, the passage of this really heinous anti worker law by, you know, wrapped in the language of racial justice. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing is just what you're talking about, Ben, is I think is that, like, it's just been so long. I mean, just that the language is atrophied in people. I mean, we just don't understand, like, they can't spot you know, the, the scam from a mile away, like they can in, like in Spain, they understand, like when I go back to Spain, like they understand, like when, when they try to like say these things, like they, they see it as corporate propaganda. People like value things like job security and like, yes, when they, when, when the the propaganda that, that builds is like, it's just, just flexibility for people. They can work their own hours and things like that. And it's like, you know, there is an understanding that while rigid kind of work, uh, policies can feel restrictive in some way, but like the job security is the most important thing. And like, you know, regulating your hours and the thing and that like flexible hours means essentially that you work all the time, not that you work kind of some of the time whenever you want. It's really that you're always working. (laughs) That's what flexible work hours really means is that you're always on the clock and you never have time to just kind of completely uh, check out. Yeah.
1: Flexible is a boss word for precarious. You know, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think that like you know one way that these things tie in. I mean, as you say, there's some like blatant like buying off. You know uh, that yeah, that Uber and Lyft, you know, spending all this money on on uh, buying off the uh, NAACP, for example. Uh, but you know, but but there is also just a way that even on the less sinister front, this stuff just isn't on the radar of a lot yeah. of vaguely progressive people. Uh, because, and like, this is what, um, uh, he doesn't, uh, you know, so like in like, for example, Thomas Frank's book, uh, listen liberal, you know, from, uh, from 2016, you know, he, he talk, well, he says the professional class, but it's like the same idea. You know, he, he talks about how, as the democratic party is since the seventies catered more and more towards this, you know, this professional strata, um, then what you get with that is this vision of liberalism that is seeing the world the way that they see it, you know, which is we're talking about uh, educated, credentialed uh, professionals uh, who who tend, you know, because their entire lives are are arranged around and oriented towards trying to climb up those educational and career ladders uh, they're Then like they even end up redefining social justice as just having more fair educational and career ladders. So like the, the cream of the crop from every identity category can, can rise through those ladders without any kind of impediments, you know, to, to their meritocratic, you know, progress, which of course, if you see it that way, then yeah, you're very concerned about like what, you know, Harvard admissions looks like. You're very concerned about the uh, literally was it Goldman Sachs just had their first, like gay Latino partner, and that was that was treated as like this massive uh, social justice thing. Mm. Uh, like you know, you're very concerned with that. You're you're much less concerned with the Uber driver, uh, you know, how, you know, like living in this neoliberal hellscape, or you know the uh, the uh, you know Amazon workers because that that just doesn't even really intersect with uh with your you know with like the conception of justice that's really motivating your whole project.
7: Well, for, for the average PMC type, Uber is incredible. Like it's just like the best thing ever, you know, like all these apps, the Postmates, for the average PMC type that is doing okay. Um, those apps are fucking, they're like manna from heaven. They love that shit. You know, it's, it's yeah, you they, keep, they, just they just do provide like ride. a genuinely decent, you know, good service for, that makes their lives kind of easier, you know, so like they, they love that shit. Um, they just never think of the <laughs> of the implications of it uh, because it just, it you know, allows them to to, uh, you know, get drunk at the after work happy hour uh, on Fridays without having to drive home. Uh, you know, it makes it just makes that easier. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's California is kind of the nightmare of hegemonic liberalism in a way like, you know, obviously, like it's annoying when the right wingers are like, oh, look, this is, you know, this is what happens when you elect a bunch of democrats but like it is kind of what happens when you elect a bunch of democrats is you just get um you know a, an absolute horrible homeless homelessness crisis which you know LA is going through right now this big this big thing in echo park i don't know if you guys have seen that story at all uh, but echo park which is you know the 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 iconic kind of lake in 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 the middle of LA with the with the swan uh little boat rides that you can take is has become essentially um since covid a like a a giant homeless encampment um and the 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 city and the police just kind of removed all of them um last weekend at the behest of all these kind of the same people who were saying black lives matter no human being is illegal uh, justice for george floyd uh, 2 seconds ago right it's it's incredibly <laughs> liberal area um and the the council member um in that region is an incredibly liberal kind of Democrat. Like, you know, he's not like some uh you know Chuck Schumer type or something. I mean I guess Chuck Schumer's wrong the wrong he's not like some uh, Amy Spanberger type or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. to put like a he's like a liberal guy. Um and um and they were happy to get the cops on these, you know, obviously most always has to be said mostly black and brown uh uh, homeless people and just get them, get them, hell, get them the hell out of my sight. You know, like that's it's really what it was. Um, and it's just, it is the vision of a nightmare. Sort of liberalism is this kind of like uh, yeah.
4: it's the
2: nimby superficial, the NIMBY thing, right? The not in my the what the nimby thing, like not in my backyard. Oh
7: yeah, I mean yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's it, yeah. yeah, right. Think of the uh, Dead Kennedy song, uh, California Uber Alice. Uh, so uh, yeah, no, for uh, for sure. Uh, so, um, and, and and I think like you know before before leaving the topic, you know I mean a point like we're making about this, uh, you know about this this part of the population we're talking about professional managerial class, uh, you know isn't um, you know isn't that like it's you know I think sometimes so many people in sort of progressively lefty spaces are so used to like a certain kind of like really dumb uh, identity politics that they, uh, that they sort of hear everything through that prism, or they're so used to making everything about um, individual moralizing that they hear everything through that prism. And so you start saying, Oh, there's this kind of liberalism. That's like uh, that, that really reflects the sort of worldview of professional managerial class. And they, and what they hear is that you're moralistically attacking individuals uh, for, uh, for belonging to, uh, to this part of the population, uh, which, uh, which is not at all the point. I mean, look, I mean, cl- I mean, it's clearly not the point, uh, when I talk about it. Cause I mean, what, what do I do? I, I have a, uh, I have a day job at a college and I write shit and I do media things. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's PMC if anything is, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs>
7: we're all, we're in the PM, I'm in the PMC. Come on. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh Forrest is aspiring PMC. But yeah. Uh,
2: okay, we'll get there uh, soon. eventual PMC. <laughs> eventual yeah, PMC,
1: soon. yeah, yeah. So so it's like that's that's not the um you know, that's not the point at all. Uh you know, it's it's not about denouncing anybody for you know for for belonging to this. Uh it's it's about thinking about the difference between a, a working class politics and uh, PMC politics, you know, and, and, and what, what kind of vision of the world we want to have, what kind of political organizing, you know, we, we want to do. Uh, and, and that, you know, to like, like to my mind, that's the point of bringing it up in the first place.
2: Well, the barriers to it are also really, really, um, I don't know, the barriers to it are never clear because the first Uber driver that, uh, exi- or Lyft driver, Uber driver, I don't remember that existed in this part of upstate New York because it took us a really long time to get, uber and lyft you know what i mean up here um the first one was my uh film professor like one of my film Mm. professors and it was his second semester teaching because they had fired a professor for allegedly saying something racist or something and they hired Mm. they hired um this this guy uh i mean it was in the paper and everything so i don't think he'd care if i said his name uh chris nostrand who is like a really good like you know, he was aspiring documentary filmmaker, but he, he was the first Uber driver. And they tried to put it as like this big story, like um, because this is like literally just a college as a town. You know what I mean? Like New Paltz says. So they tried to put it as like this feel good story, like college professor earns extra money by driving an Uber and picks <laughs> up Kingston mayor.
1: It's like it's like it's like one of those things where you'll have these feel good stories that's like, you know, uh, you know, little girl sells lemonade to, you know, to, to raise money for her brain cancer
2: treatments, you know, community yeah. rallies. Well, and it's yeah. not it's not that, I mean, it's not that dramatic because, you know. The no, it's not like, that dramatic, I mean, but it's like, but, a, but, but, yeah, but the, the structure of
1: the story is to say that it's like you're, you're describing something that shouldn't exist and like turning it into yeah. a feel good story. Um, and. And, and yeah, I mean, it's the – and, of course, I mean, stuff like that happens all the time. I mean, this is like a lot of – like a lot of educated professions are becoming more and more proletarianized. Uh, You you have people who are doing exactly that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure, like, uh, you have tons of people who are – I mean, look, people in uh, the same sort of trends that lead to, uh, you know, the Uberization of cab driving also lead to the Uberization of journalism and academia, you know, people yeah. string together all kinds of like freelance jobs with no health insurance and all that stuff. But I think, and and also, it's also worth saying, just on a larger Marxist point, that a lot of like people who fall into this category of the population are also technically part of the working class, but... Uh, The reason it's worth making this distinction is precisely because we care how people think of themselves, how they orient politically, how they try to organize, because, like, the more people think of themselves as professionals and subscribe to this kind of liberal worldview, you know, the less useful they're going to be for any kind of potential class politics, you know, whereas the more they think, oh, yeah, I'm being screwed over, I need to organize a union, you know, the better we all are.
2: They're going to try to manage the revolution (laughs) when it inevitably comes.
7: this is something that i talk about with uh what i assume is friend of the show daniel Bessner. uh but it, we, oh, yeah. we talk about it a lot like in our private lives but it was like when we're talking about like um um like all the cancel on the cancel culture stuff and why why there is so much of it going on in in these kind of pmc circles and it's because of what you're talking about the proletarization of the pmc um is 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 leading them to to essentially basically throw like this temper tantrum right because like they they were kind of told that they were going to be some of the victors in the game of capitalism. And they are increasingly realizing that they are not, especially in the industries where cancel culture is most virulent academia and the news media, like the media broadly speaking, Um, because it used to be these jobs were pretty solid. Like, you know, you were a solid winner in the, in the economy. Like you weren't going to be a, a bajillionaire, but you were like living a pretty decent life for not a huge amount of work. Um, you know, like, I mean, here in Hollywood, if you, like, were some writer uh, for TV sitcoms in the 1980s, phew, you know, a unionized gig, uh, the, paid well, you wrote, like, not that much, and, you know, it was just, like, a sweet, sweet-ass gig. And you um, get those syndication checks. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. Um, these days, that's increasingly not... It's, incre- it's, like, everything else. Like, there's, like, there's very very big winners at the high end um and and everyone else is just kind of uh chugging along um and 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 precarious as hell and i mean not to mention the news industry which is just utterly collapsed like even even beyond what it was like i remember when buzzfeed was gonna like save everything and like that you know there was that funny letter of that woman who was like uh you know, I dream every night about working for BuzzFeed and I'm like angry at all the people who work there because it seems like the most amazing place to work. Like that's gone. That's even that's gone. You know, Um, all you got to do is make lists. Right. Uh, (laughs) But that's gone. And, um, and, you know, the HuffPost fired 50 people uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I mean, that that industry has collapsed and all those people who are like, Very highly educated, were worked very hard to to achieve those degrees and that level of education, and said all the right things, and did all the, like are just increasingly finding themselves with a future that that looks pretty bleak. Um, That's why I always say, like, I I get like the left wing critique against uh, um, cancelling student debt. Like, I get it, but if you want to end the cancel culture, that's a good policy to to that'll get you a long way. I mean, if you just wipe out student debt, you get all these PMC types. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I mean, look,
1: you can argue that it's, it's, it's like bad that we emphasize uh, canceling student debt over like, as opposed to like, you know, you you know, you could argue that it should be a much lower, you know, item on the, on the priority list, you know, compared to
7: like, I I get it. Yeah.
1: You know, like, like, like uh, compared to things like, um, you know, universal daycare, that's something that like, we don't talk about very much, but we should, you know, Uh, but, uh, you know, housing rights, whatever, but like,
7: totally, totally.
1: That said, we should also cancel student debt. Like it's it's yeah. the right thing to do in itself, and also, yeah, as you say, I think I think that it's good to have something to bring a lot of these people in on for this this kind of um, you know this kind of program. Uh, so yeah, uh, so yeah I, I completely agree with that. You know, but I mean, I, and I think that it's something. Um, yeah, like like it's it's. I think that there is definitely this kind of collective psychosis. You know, as as a lot of these people, you know, become. Have these professions become much more economically precarious, and and there you know there are fewer you know it's like the the lyrics of you know worker you know working class heroes you know you know there are spots at the top that you need to learn to smile as you kill you know that like you have you know as you have fewer and fewer you know spots you know above you on the ladder you need you get more vicious about it you know which which I think is definitely ties into some of these recent. Uh, canceling controversies like the uh, the editor of teen Vogue who uh is yeah. yeah was was like literally this was about uh this was about like bad tweets from uh, from ten years ago when she was a teenager uh that you know so she was seventeen years old when she when she tweeted these things out uh and, and you know abjectly apologized for it, you know many times, but it's something people can use against you in these kinds of games so of course they will
7: yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a temper tantrum driven by precarity and you know like i think like that's as that's as good as explanation as any of i've heard you know because it is it i mean the the the, what i find strange is the sort of the denial of it that exists in some cult some circles of the left I, i frankly just don't understand it because it's it's so evident it's like it's almost like it's just very, very evident. And it's true that the right-wingers use it cynically as they will with everything that happens yeah. in the world, you know, like, huh. um, just like right-wingers are successful when they adopt left-wing cynically adopt left-wing critiques of liberalism. That's like, right. when that's when, that's why Trump won in 2016 and why he lost in 2020. Cause he stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, it's, it's just, I, I just find the whole thing strange and, um, And because on the one hand there's like there's this denial that it exists, and then there's this other there's this other strain of like overemphasizing any criticism as harassment, and I think those two things are intention. Like it's either one or the other, right? Like well, well, this um, is
1: this is really strange thing because you get the exact same people who say, "Oh, cancel culture doesn't exist." You're just talking about criticism, you know that like you know, right? Canceling they're just
7: suffering consequences or like the the pushback. you know that that comes with being rude or mean or something yeah yeah yeah.
1: which which by the way there's already a huge tension there because either it's just criticism or it's consequences it's accountability because like being criticized isn't a consequence it's not accountability uh, like like if you're, if you're actually just criticized, like somebody says you're wrong, your ideas are bad, like that's not much of a consequence. You're not being held accountable by being criticized. Like when people talk about accountability and consequences, it seems like they're implicitly admitting that they understand the difference between what human beings normally mean by criticizing and having like 2,000 strangers on Twitter, like, you know, yell at you and say that you're a piece of shit and a fascist and you should die. Like yeah. like that's yeah. not really what criticizing normally means. It doesn't like criticize it doesn't really have the psychological effect on most human beings that that has. And but as you say, the same people who will say, oh, canceling is just criticism. people are just being babies about being criticized will then say the second somebody they don't like uh, criticizes somebody that they, they they do like, especially do like it then, yeah, it, especially if it then does lead to that kind of pylon that people are pointing out when they talk about cancel culture, They'll say, Oh, this is uh targeted harassment. So like I I saw, you know, uh one of these things play out this morning. Uh and um, you know, it in you know, so I, I woke up this morning and I saw that Clint Greenwald was was trending again. It's like, oh shit, what happened oh. now? what uh, did he
7: do? Yeah. I, I was like busy, kinda busy. What did he do?
1: Uh, okay. So uh what he did, there's there's the story that uh, that came out in uh USA Today uh that was a uh, a story about how uh about uh, def- like rioters from the January 6 uh capital rioters uh using crowdfunding platforms to raise money for uh, for defense lawyers uh even mm. though like this violates the terms of service in some way of you know of some of these you know crowdfunding sites uh and- manager <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so um like the article like I mean, I guess the first thing to say about this—the article itself—is super gross. Like, because it's 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 basically an attempt to, um, you know, I mean, yeah. like like the capital riots are bad. Uh, the uh, you know this this is like uh, like obviously the politics of these people are despicable. It's uh, it's and, you know and it's bad because it's like all premised on a lie, right? You know that they're told that you know the Trump won. Where
7: was this article published?
1: USA Today. Uh, USA so, Today
7: publicist? I find that surprising in a yeah. way, right? Uh
1: well so it was uh and and the way um you know so like the capital riders are bad, but also uh, one just on principle, uh you should in fact uh, yeah, exactly uh you should in fact be um be allowed to like find a way to scrape up money so you can hire a real defense attorney. Like, like that's, that's something you should, that you should be able to do that. We should want everybody to be able to do. We shouldn't want corporations to like use their economic power to stop people from doing that. Uh, and two, it should take about three seconds of thought to, to say, Hey, uh, this precedent that we're encouraging here is not going to go well for the left in the future. Right. I mean, if, if we get a, um, uh, you know, if we get something yeah. like, like, like think about like the uh, the protests that happened uh, last summer after the murder of George Floyd. You know, like like in a in a situation like that, you know, where uh, where right. like raising money for defense lawyers, you know, is is a huge thing. Like you really want that to be accessible. So anyway, the person who uh, the reason part of the reason this was such a big thing is that the woman who wrote this article was an intern, uh, and it mm. was like her first publication, and so people said that. Uh, Glenn by uh, by quote tweeting her and saying like this is a messed up article you know because you're yeah. you're trying to pressure these corporations basically like you're snitching on people who've been able to raise money uh, using this thing in fact there's even a line I think in the article where they say something like uh, the when we pointed this out to um, when we pointed this out to uh, GoFundMe or whatever the whatever the platform was you know then they oh. shut cause it you know it violated their terms of service you know but the idea is because uh glenn greenwald uh you know has was tons picking
7: of- on like a, an intern exactly exactly yeah, yeah. So, so
1: and then the claim is that that's harassment which whatever you think about the ethics of who's allowed to quote tweet or criticize who uh like i get really confused about how um about how like quote tweeting somebody to say to like criticize, even harshly criticize their article can be harassment or target hard incitement to harassment, whatever it's supposed to be here at the same time that there's no such thing as cancel culture because it's just yeah
7: That's I mean did you guys watch the the HBO, the Damon Lindelof uh take uh watchmen? Did you guys watch that show on HBO? I watched like, the watchmen. first episode I didn't get into okay, it. So it's 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 Um, it's very, it's very, uh, the politics of it are very wonky and very kind of confused and muddled. Mm -hmm. Um, the show itself is kind of bold in, in the Damon Lindelof way that I appreciated, but the politics of which are like all over the place. But there is one political insight that I, like one political provocation that I found, uh, interesting and kind of very apt uh, yeah. For the current moment, which is that essentially the world of, of Watchmen exi- exists in like a woke liberal fascist state in which like uh, civil liberties and things like that are waived for racists, you know, like uh, Ku Klux Klan types or white uh, hillbilly racists and shit like that. Like the the dominant the the like the dominant state is like liberal and woke and like, uh, Henry Louis Gates is like the minister of whatever the fuck. And he, and he delivers like, uh, these kind of very woke, uh, um, you know, essentially like, uh, like propaganda videos for whenever you sign up for whatever the thing is that you do in the state, whatever. So it's a provocation of like, Wait, you David Lindelof saw that if like Henry the Lewis current Gates libs part... got
2: everything they wanted, the what? Is he, is he played by Henry Louis Gates or is he supposed to be? yeah, yeah. yeah it's him. It's him oh. doing
7: it. I don't know if he realizes like, or I don't know if like even Damon Lindelof realized what he's doing, but he's essentially like created a world in which the libs of which he's probably one of and around all the time, got everything they wanted, you know, and got to like, got to like be violent towards all the people they didn't like, who in many ways are, you know, not good people. But like, um, I found that, that provocation was kind of interesting because what you're talking about, Ben, is that there it, there are no principles at play. Like, there's no such thing as liberal principles anymore. I mean, like, there were, there's some idea of, like, liberal kind of principles in some kind of theoretic sense. But, like, no liberals have them anymore, you know? I don't know if it's ever true that they actually really did have them, like, or whether we've always been kind of in, in this culture war uh, nightmare. But, yeah, like, yeah. the principles only apply to defend your friends and the people you like and never against people you don't like. Um, I don't know. Maybe it is a newer thing, uh
1: i think it probably waxes and wanes you know like like uh you know but it's certainly true i think in terms of recent history uh that a lot of of liberals and liberal organizations seem to have stronger principles uh, about uh you know things like free speech i mean if you think about some of the cases that the aclu used to do you know that uh that they they yeah. seem to not at all be reflected in the same stances of even some of those same organizations now uh, yeah. because because yeah, it's it's this sort of, um, and, and really I think in a way it does tie into this this kind of like you know quasi meritocratic like liberal vision of uh, social justice, uh, because you know once you've removed a lot of these uh, arbitrary prejudice barriers, you know to uh, to advancement. Uh, but clearly, the world is still incredibly fucked up. You know that there's there's still you know things happening like you know George Floyd being murdered by the police and you know et cetera et cetera. You know Donald Trump was president until five minutes ago. Uh, you know then um, then you need to to kind of go hunting for someone or or, or you know like you know like you think okay well the problem is that we're not going after you know the the bad people you know the bigots you know and yeah.
7: Well, it's like the 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 discourse around any um, like mass shooting or whatever uh, is always like, why isn't this person being called a terrorist? Yeah, because
1: <laughs> yeah, what we should want just this category, of right? Challenge. Is just
7: expand the net of people that we just kind of like throw a black bag over their head and take them to uh, take them to Guantanamo. <laughs> you know, open up Guantanamo uh, for everybody, baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's the real. Uh, yeah, just uh, Guantanamo for all uh, is is the sort of is the There's real. Be a black of, site yeah, app. You could Just be able to open yeah, one up. Yeah. You want. Um, so so you can report is, people like that. Yeah. In a weird way, though, Glenn Greenwald. One of the one of the reasons why he I think is makes everyone so mad is because he is a liberal with principles. He's not like, he's not like a, he's not like on the socialist left. No, he's, he's, um, he's, he's, he's not.
1: He's I mean, like that's... a,
7: he's like a, he's like a Frank church liberal, you know, like a 1970s. Yeah. Liberal, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, yeah. and well, well, that, yeah. that kind of, that, that, that kind of figure doesn't have a home in American politics today. It just doesn't no, exist. No, I
1: that's I think that's totally right. Like, cause I, cause I think, um, and this is what, uh, you know, I mean, credit where credit's due. He was very gracious about it, you know, but like we were criticizing him on here a few weeks ago, that was what it was for. Cause like when he starts talking about economic issues, I mean, he's kind of confused, you know, cause, cause he, uh, cause he doesn't spend that much time thinking about it. And and he sort of registers like, okay, here are different figures in different parts of the political spectrum who will sort of score some points by, uh, you know, by, by talking about, you know, Amazon or whatever. uh, And, and and he's not like really registering distinctions that he, sh- he should register, you know, which yeah. which certainly uh, certainly he would if he were a socialist, uh, yeah. and and he's not. That's not the kind of that's not the kind of issue he thinks about. That that's not really what it it's yeah. on his mind, you know. Uh, but yeah, but he's yeah right. I think the Frank Church uh, analogy is 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 really good, right? Because that was the guy in the uh, the post uh, the Church Committee, you know, with the uh, the hearings on all of the terrible shit that you know the FBI and the CIA had done, uh, and. Um, when he, uh, I was just
2: he... I was just listening to Nixonland, so that kind of resonates with yeah. the reference to.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you see in Nixonland, you see very clearly that the that the liberals of the time, as annoying as they I'm sure were, um, you know, because liberals are always annoying. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, they they really did have a a much more robust governing vision um, than the liberals of today. Um, there was like there was the you know they talk a lot about in Lixenland like you know hearings of like Forrest, did you get to the part where they're like talking about the like the the commercials for kids and shit you know and there's like all these like civil servants and and like uh uh senators who very earnestly want to like uh, uh yeah that's regulate nader what goes that's on nader. the airwaves uh, and shit that's yeah,
1: nader that's, that's funny, that's, uh, right? in uh, riggeland i thought partly
7: nader who is also a liberal by the yeah. way you know um uh, you know and and one of these type of one of these kind of type of liberals um uh but there was others i mean there's a bunch of senators and shit that were like uh i I remember like thinking like there's just no one today would have that level of kind of earnest good government uh desire to actually govern uh, according to certain principles that are beyond you know whatever the fuck is like of the daily controversy or you know capital kind of interests yeah because
1: um, what you really want to do like this and this is i think what i mean some of this i think is just a disease of social media you know but like uh what this but i think it's also like the culture war in general which yeah I, i've been very i've alternated between that and other books but i'm continuing i read the rest of the pearlstein books i'm still very slowly crawling through Reaganland. oh uh, but oh nixon
7: uh, i was confused I, I, I was talking about Reaganland. Yeah, Nixonland yeah, is the, they, yeah, yeah. They, the yeah yeah in Reaganland they talk about the uh, the, the, the child yeah the Nader uh, yeah. they say they we're say about, you know, there's that, yeah, there's that sure.
2: line that's like um that there's that line that he's finally going after the money or whatever and and that's what finally turns the tide on on public opinion of Nader it's like um yeah. they're warning him against going against money that's gonna actually like mess with capital Um yeah. those
7: yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, no, and, and like, liberals in the 80s, like, there was fucking crusty bullshit Democrats in in the 80s that were, like, censoring the Reagan administration for sending, you know, uh, money to the Contras and, like, unimaginable shit today, you know? Like, uh, um, there was a political home for, for that kind of liberal back then. I mean, there was also awful liberals and then there was awful, course, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, like, uh, um, yeah. those but, kind but of but liberals like, just don't like exist
1: more... More principled liberals, people who are closer to that claim, yeah. Greenwald, Ralph Nader, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, kind of approach uh, that uh, you know, who who definitely you know had a bigger role in the Democratic Party and media, etc. And I think part of what and I, I, and in Reagan Land, especially, like they they're really tracing like maybe the beginnings of this, uh, or certainly like a phase of it that the stuff right now traces back to of this kind of perpetual culture war mm-hmm. that, that we have. In, in American yeah. politics, in the way that like
7: a lot of sort well, of that like, was one of the most shocking things to me about Nixon land is just like how how much I recognized a lot of the cultural regular. bullshit. Uh, but no, and Nixon, no, especially oh, Nixonland, okay. yeah, especially yeah. Nixonland. The the response to the My Lai massacre, for example, oh yeah, yeah, that so yeah, yeah. That that to me was like I'll never like I, you know I assumed that the prevailing narrative around Milai was the correct one because like I think now everyone assumed like everyone is like yeah that was bad um but like in the moment it got filtered through the culture war and um and there was people saying like no uh cali was you know what he did was was correct and and you yeah, should, yeah you should it, get a medal yeah right
1: exactly is it like it, it felt exactly like yeah conservatives now rallying behind kyle rittenhouse or whatever,
2: whatever awful yeah. thing yeah, or exactly. or, could, or conservatives rallying around any of the atrocities really that happened um in the iraq war and kind of pushing back against like wikileaks even yeah. um releasing information about it
7: uh, yeah um, it, it is yeah. wild to read those books because it is it is like an inversion of the moment that of the era in which all of us grew up in right it is a, is a moment in which liberalism was hegemonic and ascendant and and the dominant thing in all and everything in every and every you know hearing hearing like ceos in 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 he quotes ceos in reaganland that like discussed the way they talk about unions makes them sound like fucking bernie sanders you know um in like the, the 50s boardroom jacobins one. right is the well the boardroom they, jacobins came, came were the ones who yeah. ended all that shit yeah
1: yeah the um, people, right right what he means yeah, are the sort of like militant one percenters like pushing back against yes. consumer,
7: consumer protection yeah.
1: And, you know, pushing yeah. for, for tax cuts.
7: Uh, who yeah. then won everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, start yeah. Off more, who start
2: off more friendly to labor, I think, than they end up when they realize that they have that little, you know, hole to get through that they can start really crushing some of that stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think that, like, that kind of perpetual culture war, you know, that, that you get some of the roots of in that book, I think especially combined with, like, the way that it all filters through social media – Uh, like really encourages people to see politics as this never-ending, like as like the point of political struggle, not as like changing, you know, policies or social structures or, you know, whatever, like, you know, uh, you know, nerd shit that we might care about about how healthcare works or anything like that, you know, but like really what what it encourages them to see the point of political struggle as is punishing the bad people, you know, like making sure That the
7: Watchmen fantasy. Yeah, the yeah. Watchmen liberal fantasy is what it is. It's just, we won, we get to punish you now. And, you it's know, like, our life may still be yeah. kind of shitty, but
1: we get to punish yeah, you. But at, <laughs> least I get, at least it's almost like that, like, Thomas Aquinas thing that um,
7: yeah.
1: Uh, Nietzsche quotes the genealogy of morals about how one of the pleasures of the saved in heaven is going to be watching the damned being suffered in hell.
7: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's also the, the kind of creation of like a WWE style politics where there's always a yeah, heel. Yeah. There's always a heel that you want to punish. Like I did kind of the.
7: Yeah. When I was at Fusion, I did a um, like a little mini, like a like a video where I traveled to Minnesota to talk to Jesse Ventura about Trump's time in WWE. Because, I mean, I remember when Trump was running in in the first election. Uh, there was, like, tons of scrutiny over his time at The Apprentice, and I wow. guess. But, like, the political persona that he that he won with, he did not forge in The Apprentice. He was not doing the you're fired thing. He, the, the, the subplot that Trump was in, in WWE, I, do you guys remember it? Do, or did you guys watch it? Or, or, I mean, so I seemed like... The thing Social that he did was that he... It he pitched himself against uh, Vince McMahon and they had this like very long kind of war um, in, Vin- in which Vince McMahon was the the kind of Trump in Celebrity Apprentice, like the asshole boss, the brazen plutocrat who just wanted to fire you um, and shit. And um, Trump was the populist billionaire who at one point buys Monday Night Raw from Vince McMahon, airs it without a single ad, you know, like does like a commercial free episode of monday night raw and showers people in the crowd with cash like from bags in the rafters like cash is falling on the crowd in this kind of commercial list. you know like a basically like an in in a way like an anti-capitalist capitalist capitalist, if that makes sense and that was the subplot and then they were going to fight or some shit and then at one point trump shaves vince mcmahon's head because that was the bet that they had so but the political persona of this sort of uh, populist billionaire was forged in the fires of professional wrestling, uh, not so much The Apprentice. And it's like, um, the libs miss that one because they don't watch WWE.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think uh, Matt Taibbi talks about this in uh, Hate Inc., uh, you know, which which is a, I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, Taibbi is another one of those, like, you know. Another liberal. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, but, you know, but he has, but it's, you know, it's an insightful book. And, um, and I think it really gets at a lot of things that I think a lot of people, you know, like, uh, a lot of leftists, you know, could, could like learn from, because I think it's not really something that's a big part of their media critique, but it should be is the way that like the, uh, sort of collapse of traditional media and the fracturing of audiences, uh, gives, uh, gives these organizations incentive to just, you know, incessantly pander, you know, oh. to,
7: whatever stupid I was little- watching... um I, I don't watch CNN um, at all, but I was watching the Stanley Tucci show, which is excellent on CNN. Um, but I started getting like, you know, as I was watching the show, I was getting promos for like other CNN shit. And I, it like, it was the most cynical shit I think I can ever see. Like one of them was, this is like in the wake of the mass shooting in Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. And just the promo was just like every single Asian correspondent on cnn saying like their name and then saying like we are cnn like i'm lisa ling i'm like they just like okay let's just do let's just fire it up quickly guys come on uh this is what the people want you know like uh just the most cynical fucking thing i've ever seen um and it's it it really goes to show like just how much they've like the taibi critique of of the mainstream media in which they've just had to pick a side you know they've had to pick a side in the culture war and if you don't you will lose i mean that's what's happening to um, you know, so a network like ABC, which, mm-hmm. you know, st- those networks still have to try to uh, appeal to a broad base. Well, like all the culture that gets produced is on one side or the other. So they had the whole fracas with Roseanne, the Roseanne Barr show. Then they had the whole fracas with Blackish, um, in which they kind of censored an anti Trump episode. And then the creator was just like, fuck this, I'm going to Netflix, you know? Um, and it's just like, I, I kind of sympathize with the networks because. It is impossible in this day and age to appeal to, uh, for lack of a better term, both sides. You know, you have to kind of choose, and the New York Times has chosen. You know, CNN has chosen. Fox well, CNN chosen, hired right? uh, to...
2: Jeff Zucker, right? The ESPN guy. Yeah, for that for that very
7: reason. Yeah, well, he was. Yeah. Well, he was. He made his name at, at NBC. He was like an NBC wonderkind. Um, mm-hmm. Ran the Today Show when he was like twenty-five, um, and and was like. Yeah, I mean, was one of the big his big his big insight was like we need to turn these uh kind of traditional news shows uh into entertainment shows. Yeah. Um and he destroyed like crushed it in the ratings. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Uh and yeah, and something you, you know, you, talks about in the book mm-hmm. is is the way that like you can Understand a lot of the Trump phenomena, you know, by thinking about professional wrestling and, and and the way that like there are certain kinds of heels that people like to root for, that, you know. Yeah, well, uh, Megan McCain.
7: People say Megan McCain is unqualified for the View. Megan McCain is perfectly qualified for the View. She is the best thing that's ever happened to the View. You know, <laughs> Megan McCain, like her stunning lack of self awareness, allows her to be the perfect heel. Like that's exactly why she's there, people, so that you will get mad at her like every day, and 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 that way you can be mad at the TV. ESPN had that insight when they fucking pitted Stephen A. Smith against Skip Bayless, yeah, for, like, <laughs> hours upon hours upon hours, and that that became their programming. Like they were just like, really, I just have to get two guys who are like in different ways. Kind of obnoxious. One of them much more the other. I kind of admire Stephen A. Smith. He's but uh, um, you know, like as long as they can just like be the Balrog fighting Gandalf, falling, you know, for all of eternity, uh, people (laughs) will people will watch it. Uh, That's what it is. Like they don't, you don't, you're not supposed to like Skip Bayless. Like the whole point of him being there was that you can hate him and it makes you feel kind of good in a way.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I sort of perversely half like Skip Bayless, but uh, I have, but yeah. There you go. Uh, you know, but yeah, I mean the uh, although although Stephen A is much more um, you know like 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 I think his form of obnoxiousness you know is is, is much more entertaining and theatrical. Um, but uh, but yeah, no for for sure. Uh, and and I think that and again like the the point like of of all of this and and this is what you see in. Like people who, as you you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier with the you know the homeless gammons in Los Angeles, you know people who turned on a dime from last summer. They were all about all cops are bad. You know we we Mm. really need to scale back policing, maybe abolish it. Uh, And then by like mid January, they were all about how every single one of these Capitol rioters need to be like executed you know, that like, that like yeah, every yeah. single person who was there, you know, needs to be rounded up and the full force of the law needs to be applied to them. And, you know, why, like, yeah. like it, it, you know, because, because it's not really because all politics is about at that point is trying to look for places why the bad people, you know, the people that you hate, you know, can, <laughs> uh, can be made to suffer. So you win. Uh, and, and this is, and yeah, Fox got there first, uh, you know, like they, like, they were the original, like, um, keeping people afraid 24 hours a day, seven days a week network. Uh, but then like the MSNBC version, they just had to like, it just took them a few years to like kind of get right the formula that like riled up, you know, boomer liberals all, you know, all day into like a frothing like fury. Um, you know, you had to talk about Russia all day and all night. Uh, and, and then, uh, and then I think a lot of this Twitter stuff, it's, it's the exact same, uh, it's the exact same dynamics, right? Like how can I get the people, you know, who who I hate uh to to suffer, which is which is what, you know, accountability and is also apparently what politics is about, you know, never mind like, you know, economic equality or anything dumb like that. Yeah. So uh so I, I do want to um I, I do want to move, you know, before, uh, before we, we wrap up to uh, to yeah. a couple of at least ambiguous uh, bright spots. So, uh, so one, you know, as we think about ways to, uh, to move beyond uh, this sort of uh, eternal idiotic, you know, like culture war politics, uh, you know, one of the uh, most, you know, well, I mean, Michael Brooks always used to say like, you know, the most gifted, you know, political communicators in the world. Uh, you know Lula da Silva, um, you know just uh, just had uh, all of uh, all of his uh, his child, you know which which is a uh, you know like an, an unambiguous good. But yeah, for us, let's uh, let's show let's play that clip.
6: Brazil's former leader Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva took aim at the policies and the COVID nineteen response of Jair Bolsonaro, the man he's rumored to be eager to unseat
8: cuida
4: This
6: about is Lula's first address since of the, the Supreme Court in Brasilia, quashed his corruption convictions earlier this week. Lula's supporters were out to trumpet his innocence, but the current president said the court should rethink its decision, adding that the leftist administration was nothing other than a catastrophe. The case against Lula was dismissed on a technicality, meaning that he can run for office now once again, should he wish to. <laughs>
8: He's talking about thinking about running in 2000. are already
6: looking into Brazil's political crystal ball. A new opinion poll suggests that Lula and his arch-rival Bolsonaro would have the support needed to reach a second round face-off at next year's ballot.
9: Uh, I think it means, uh, first of all, that the rule of law Brazil uh, came out as a winner, uh, that democracy uh, came out winning, uh, because Lula, as you, as you already mentioned, in 2018, should have run for president. He was illegally removed from the race. He was in jail for 580 days. During that period, uh, he lost his brother. Uh, he was not allowed to see, to even actually go to his brother's funeral. He lost his uh, grandchildren, grand, uh, grandchild, um, who, di- who died of a uh, uh, disease uh, at an early age. He could not go uh, freely to the um, to his funeral as well. He lost his um, political rights. He lost um, all of his rights, not only financially speaking um the the presumption of it, his presumption uh, presumption of innocence was highly violated which is a gross a gross violation of human rights so after five years uh which came in and in, in a delay uh he was uh declared uh not innocent because um actually the procedures will go on uh but all of the procedures since the charges not only the convictions But all procedures against President Lula within the car wash operation have been annulled. Uh, This means that he um, can run for president. He has all of his political rights standing. Um, He is a a citizen that should be uh, presumed presumed innocent before uh, everybody's eyes.
7: You know, it's funny, we were just talking about uh, our good liberal friend, Glenn Greenwald, like it's impossible to imagine the pretty stunning political developments that are happening in Brazil without uh, his journalism, really. I mean, it's just, it's it's hard to overstate just how impactful those leaks were in discrediting uh, a, a political figure like Sergio Moro, who was the judge, um, the prosecutor who, uh, uh, uh basically got Lula and Lula in prison um became like a just an international celebrity like just look up on YouTube uh that guy's name and you'll see him invited um speaking at universities all over the world at, at prestigious events seen as a hero of of anti-corruption and Anderson Cooper uh produced like a, just an absolute like tongue bath of a segment for 60 minutes uh about it and um
2: and I, have I, a, I, have a short, I have a couple seconds of that as a clip and oh really yeah, yeah. okay yeah let's do it all right um come on.
1: but yeah but yeah so uh so that you have like sergio moro uh you know who who was riding high and and these yeah. these revelations that uh that glenn published at uh at a great actual personal risk you know to uh to himself yeah, i yeah. mean like, you know to like being like literally like um you know, certainly legal risks. Yeah. And, the psychotic, and-
7: like, single-mindedness that Glenn shows by, like, you know, getting really angry about a USA Today story, which I just have not read a single USA Today story in, you know, maybe in my lifetime. Uh, that's <laughs> no, That, that that's, same that's, level that's, uh, of kind of single-minded focus is what leads him to be a good investigative journalist. I mean, investigative journalists are not – they're not, like, very good social creatures, you know you have to be kind of you have to have it's kind of a desire too. some desire to yeah to to piss people off all the time and those are the best the best ones are like that it's just it's just a strange profession it's not a it's
2: we kind of we made that point like, we made that point in our criticism of him kind of um
7: oh really
1: yeah 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 That he's still <laughs> like yeah i mean look and and, and of course like we preface the whole thing you know saying like I think that like some of his assessments about U.S. politics uh, are, are are wrong. I think that he's well, it's because we're Marxist and he's not. Yeah, he's basically the boat on some important economic issues, but like also, yeah. like uh, this is a guy who, yes, uh, was taking these huge risks of of imprisonment, of just being murdered by Brazilian fascists, uh, who yeah. uh, who was doing that coming on the heels of having taken these massive personal risks to expose the NSA spying on everybody. Uh, And, and and like, he's just like, like, you know, whatever you think of whatever take he's got, uh, you know, that like people are like,
7: Yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's, it's not like this, this guy is worth any like 200 of these like New York media creatures who are obsessed with hating him.
2: What do we uh, but, say? He's worth the whole lineup of uh, MSNBC. We, we yeah.
7: well. That's easy. But... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, but th- I don't know if you guys saw what's been going on today. There's been like a there's been a ton of shit go- going down today in Brazil. Like uh, you know, two or three of, uh, of Bolsonaro's you know cabinet ministers are are out. Um, I mean, it's uh, uh, the the Supreme Court ruled that uh, Sergio Moro was was biased in his case against Lula. Like, I mean, it's just a total. Just a total flipping of the script, um, in a way, like, you know how, like, one of the, one of the, one of the things of today is that shit gets published and then kind of nothing happens. You know, we just learn about the awful thing and then nothing happens. The awful thing just continues. Um, I don't know. The, the Afghanistan papers were published, uh, a few months ago and like it's just like just we just washed right over us like not you know um for whatever reason this story has stuck even though the political structures of brazil have not changed um you know bolsonaro is still president and you know brazil is still ruled by a um a very powerful oligarchy uh but this, this it's been so consequential that even under those conditions um, there have been political consequences. Well the story um, that came out yesterday that
2: was fucking insane is that uh Delton Dalignal, um I think is how you pronounce his name, the, the lead attorney on Lava Jato, lit and this is this is insane. Literally yeah. took money from some like Backer, or from somebody that he didn't earn through his uh, work at, on Bolsonaro's uh, regime or on the Lava case, and renovated a really like an, a luxury apartment for himself, which is literally what they accused Lula of doing. Yeah, no evidence.
7: Doing, yeah.
2: so yeah, so, so they had this multi million dollar apartment that this guy was living in while he's prosecuting Lula's case, and he's taking this money, like this shady money on the side. And and through like these these contractors and and to the point where he hid it in like other people's accounts and renovating his own apartment. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I mean that totally. Uh, so uh, so yeah, you have the uh, you have that clip.
3: Yeah. Hold on. How does car wash compare to Watergate? Car wash is much much bigger. Delton Dalignol <laughs> is the lead prosecutor. Bigger than Watergate. Much bigger. We already have charges more than 200 people for hundreds of crimes.
6: Now, Operation Car Wash and the scandal uncovered by it is way too complicated to get into now. Suffice to say that it involves this gas station, uh, these two companies, inflated contracts, bribes, and kickbacks to government officials, and an elderly gentleman who flew around the world with bricks of cash, shrink-wrapped, and strapped beneath thigh-high socks and a Spanx-like vest, which really explains this year's hottest Halloween costume, sexy car wash co-conspirator.
7: That's kind of a, I don't know, that kind of, that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's
2: amazing. I want to get a Lava Jato t shirt. Yeah, yes, me too. Right. Uh, yeah, I really want one.
7: So Lava Jato, that's Car Wash. What guess, the too. hell is going so, on here? Whatever. They speak Spanish, but I think they speak Portuguese, Portuguese oh, right? Oh, it's the you've seen this? So yes. yeah, Lava Jato. So there, we met those guys, by the way. Uh, I, I got to meet those guys. I interviewed, I don't know, that kind of, that's amazing.
2: Yeah, no, that's amazing. I want to get a Lava Jato t shirt. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I really want one.
7: So, Lava
5: Jato, that's Car Wash, I guess, in uh, whatever. They speak Spanish, but I think they speak Portuguese, Portuguese, right? Portuguese in Brazil. So, Hmm. yeah, Lava Jato. So, we met those
7: guys, by the way. Uh, I I got to meet those guys, I interviewed them. I mean that's incredible. I mean,
2: I, I couldn't even see anything like that happening in the. I mean, usually in the United States,
5: where a senator would go to jail, and yeah, the Head exactly. of an oil company would go
2: to jail. That's Exactly. Right. Like You mean like Steve Mnuchin would have like gone Steve to Mnuchin jail? Steve Mnuchin would yeah. have went to jail. Yeah, yes. exactly. I mean, it's, usually when you hear about white collar crime in the United States, which isn't even often, but right.
7: the few times it does happen, usually it's somebody lower on the yes. totem pole in comparison. When I met him. Yeah. yeah. So wow, that um, is uh that's a good that's a good little uh I want to get a lot of jabs. Yeah,
1: yeah. So so the whole the whole spectrum of uh shitty stupid American media, uh, you know, from uh from uh Anderson Cooper uh to yeah. uh John Oliver to Jimmy Dore, um, you know, and I know Dore, you know, later, you know, like said that he was mistaken or whatever, but also I think it's pretty revealing that uh um, the
2: video is still up. I yeah. found it yesterday. Okay. Like, well, uh, I mean, uh,
9: there's
1: there's uh, yeah. something
7: admirable of of. of
1: no, you should know. sh- you should keep your shitty old videos up. Like that's the yeah. like I'm not gonna, I'm not going to go after him for that. You know that that yeah, part. Kyle good.
7: Kalinske's old tweets. You know he keeps them. <laughs> up, you know, bless him. I love Kyle Clint, <laughs> honestly. Hopefully. That's that's such a ballsy move that I gotta respect it. You just have to respect it, man. Like I would not have. Stones <laughs> to do that. If I had those tweets, uh, I would fucking deleted them real quick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's. Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, hey, I, mean, I don't.
2: Think you, I don't think you should go after Jimmy Dore, but it's interesting. He's clearly. Um, I don't know. He's clearly very obsessed with how his show is perceived by people, and it's interesting that he's willing to keep that up. I think.
1: No, yeah. I mean, like, like well, I said, I'm, I'm not going to fault him for keeping it up. Like I'm, you know, I'm all for Kyle Kalinsky in it. I, I just think that it's. Um, yeah you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised, uh, you know, that's, um, yeah, that's a clip that Michael used to, uh, used to show, uh, you know, regularly, but he, uh, but
7: that's. um, well, I mean, it just goes to show like what happens when you don't understand, you know, yeah. kind of history, uh, just really like, I mean, that's the kind of the Lava Giotto thing, much like, uh, the Venezuelan, i uh, sorry, the, uh, Bolivian, like quote unquote stolen election. It's like, As it happens in the news, if you have any sort of ideological background and any understanding of history, as it's happening in real time, you're like, you know, you can see what you're like, Okay, I know what's this. I know what this is. This is very this is very clearly this is very obvious what this is like, you know, you don't have to be an expert in Bolivia to understand what it is. You just have to know a little bit basic history of of of. U.S. imperialism in Latin America, uh, exactly, you know, yeah. the, the basic structures of of a power uh, in Latin America to understand like what the fuck's going on. Um, I mean, it's the populism know, like, thing
2: too. Like, I, like I don't know. It's anything that takes down elites or "quote unquote" yeah. elites. You're something no, like, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm inspired. like yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, in Jimmy's case, I think there's definitely an element of that. Uh, but I think I think the broader point is what Nando was saying that like uh, that I, that anybody who does not really know or understand anything about that history, and you know, whatever. I don't necessarily want to be this guy, like, you know, correcting everybody's time. No, you don't have to
7: like read a book about like every single fucking country in the world, you know, like, but there's like basic structures. But it's, but, but, but it's structures. also
1: like like, 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 like when you don't know what language they speak in Brazil, like, well, that's yeah. that, that, that's probably an indication that you know, you're not yeah. like, you know,
2: super up on this. Uh, At least Spanish or uh, Portuguese, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think one point is Brazilian, but yeah, the uh, uh, but um but like yeah sure you don't have to be an expert in every one of these situations but if you have a general sense of what u.s imperialism has looked like in latin america and you know recent decades they're the same way that oh uh they had a military coup in uh, bolivia but it's totally fine it's not like a re- it's not like a bad coup because trust us they like leftist president totally stole that election uh yeah. or uh well, he did this- some
7: bad things yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what, but yeah, there's some <laughs> bad stuff.
1: Yeah. Or same thing here, you know, that like this, this, um, you know, this effort to, uh, remove this incredibly popular social democratic, uh, president, uh, you know, to have stop him from running again, you know, by, uh, by, by charging him, uh, in this way after the lawfare, you know, coup against, uh, against Dilma, you know, before then, uh, which, was clearly like you know you just had to read just a little bit into that yeah. to kind of get what was going on there that like you you literally had like Bolsonaro when he was still in Congress and he was voting to impeach uh, uh Dilma uh, said that he uh since since she was actually like a leftist like guerrilla you know back you know uh with that you know that uh, war was going on uh you know and and she was captured and tortured and and he um and he said like when he was announcing his vote in Congress that he dedicated his vote to, like, the commandant, you know, at the, like, prison who tortured her.
7: The jailer, yeah, her jailer, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, it's like, if, you know, like, you don't have to know that much about this to know what's going on, but the point is, if you don't know what's going on, there was this incredibly slick, well-financed propaganda effort that lots of people for lots of different reasons fell for. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Um, It's just... uh, They they step on the rake every time. I mean, it's just... uh, you know, you uh, a lot of these people are kind of well-meaning, um, but it's, it's a lot of them are not. And it's just uh, it's very much uh, like when you see when you see uh, I don't know if you guys saw the Washington Post editorial on on Bolivia the other day, which is just like it's stunning that it came out in the Washington Post after it was the Washington Post that broke the news in the United States that the OAS report on the Bolivian election was bullshit uh, back in 2019. That um, they can then turn around now and repeat outright falsehoods, uh, saying that Evo Morales stole the election in 2019. This was in the Washington Post editorial last week, um, and it's like, guys, you know,
1: which is which which is particularly absurd because uh, the the original OAS report, uh, the evidence they were using that the election had been stolen in Bolivia. Uh, to justify the military coup was exactly the same kind of evidence that, like Rudy Giuliani was talking about, and that, like uh, that, the the Capitol rioters were worked up about. You know, well, with, with, one with, big with, difference,
7: with, though, that the well, well, OAS well, never even they never even alleged that they that the um, that Morales had lost the election. They just suggested that he didn't win by a large enough margin. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Like right? that is an important difference. But like, you know, but it was the same kind of thing where they were saying, "Oh, you know, they're like the the percentage of the vote he got in this area is like implausible." You know, given the yeah. demographics of it, and, and yeah, then like the second you started like looking at the fine print, even that stopped making sense. But I mean, it's the exact same kind of bullshit that American conservatives were talking about after yeah. uh, after the election here, which makes it particularly amazing that like the house organ of mediocre American liberalism, uh, the Washington post would be totally buying into this when it comes to Bolivia. Yeah.
2: Well, similarly, I mean, similarly, uh, New York times, I had this, I had this um, screenshots of this uh, if we got into more about this, but um, when, now that uh, Inez is, is, you know, in jail, and they have like, a, they're only holding her for four months, they want to like do an investigation, they want to make sure that she can't, you know, like sick people on them while she's getting the investigation, like they want to make sure that, you know, and, and the investigation is over the massacres, you know what I mean? But then the New York Times turns around and goes, released an article a couple days ago, where, or a couple weeks ago, where they're like, well, she doesn't pose any immediate threat, specifically to this government, I don't understand why she's being jailed. Which, if you look at the New York Times coverage of Trump and Trump supporters and the Capitol riots, they're they very much like, this is a coup. Trump, even if he's not elected, can just turn around right now and sick everybody on the Capitol. This is unsafe. I don't feel safe right now. Like, all this stuff. And somehow, when it's Bolivia, they don't understand how somebody, you know, not jailed could, um, in an actual coup situation, could. No, well,
1: well um, that the well, thing well, too, especially, because it's like <laughs> I mean, the capital, you know, capital riots is bad because the cause was bad, and because they, you know, they were being riled up with lies, and you know, et cetera, uh, you know. But uh, and a lot of creepy, you know, fascisty people there. But like, uh, but it's also uh, nobody actually um, like. There's one cop who uh, may have died as a indirect uh, result of something that happened in the riot. A little unclear, honestly. Uh, they like the original story was they had been bashed with a fire extinguisher that's since been walked back. Uh they uh, they they say now there's you know there's no evidence of blunt force trauma. It's it's possible that a chemical irritant, you know, like had side effects, that complications that led to him died. Uh if so, that might have been friendly fire, you know, because cause there were chemical irritants being sprayed on both sides. And that's the one guy, right? nobody seems to have intentionally killed anybody except for the the one person who was shot by the cops. Uh, The big, like the zip tie guy, which I certainly bought into at the time. I thought, Oh, look, he's a guy with zip ties. He must've been planning to kidnap somebody. Uh, That's a bartender who was there with his mom. I don't think he was planning on doing a, you know, like doing a kidnapping plot. Uh, You never know
2: mom. We could take one of them.
1: (laughs) And and, And he had, and, and, and they've now withdrawn that charge because, you know, because they said he, he, don't, he didn't bring zip ties to the Capitol, like he picked up some zip ties that had been dropped by a cop and had his picture taken. Uh, and, and so none of which is to say that these are you know good people. I mean, these are uh, terrible, disgusting right wing people uh, who, who had like a very bad cause. They were, they were trying to yeah. overturn what was in fact a legitimate election that had been lied to and told it was a stolen election. But also it's like, okay. Uh, it's like a, like a fairly in the greater scheme of things a fairly minor riot uh, compared to in Bolivia an actual successful military coup where they massacred supporters of the deposed democratic government and so if all of these like uh, mainstream liberal organs could see value in locking up everybody who was the capital riot the idea that they would like, then turn around and say um no it's excessive to uh to lock people up uh who are who are accused of actual like one who were definitely involved in a military coup <laughs> against the elected government and two are accused of orchestrated massacres like like that like that's just such a weird and like blink had said that right that they have yeah. a uh that it's very yeah, worrying. I,
2: have, I have that uh or i should have oh, yeah, yeah, it, that it, yeah um, We're deeply concerned by growing signs of anti-democratic behavior and politicization of, of the legal system in Bolivia. The Bolivian government should release detainees. Oh, not
7: of- the politicization <laughs> of the legal system, by God. God forbid the legal system would be politicized. I forgot that in the United States, the legal system is perfectly not politicized. <laughs>
2: <Depending> <laughs> and transparent inquiry into human rights and due process concerns. I mean, because, you know, there's such a good history of... Uh, independent and transparent inquiries in this case too
1: well, well it's, it's, also, it's also bizarre because what they're calling you know politicization is just like having laws being enforced against powerful people which to be fair is how we tend to use that term in this country too that like you know that they said like that was the whole excuse for the obama look forward not backward thing with not prosecuting yeah. like cia torturers who'd uh who'd you know uh, put stuck people's heads and cold water and peeled off their fingernails and shit like that, because that would be politicizing the legal system.
7: Well, the, the, the other tension that exists within the libs is that they um, all of a sudden in the last couple of years, whatever they see uh, systemic racism in places where it exists and in places where it probably doesn't exist. Uh, But they see systemic racism everywhere in the United States that they see that the, the United States, criminal justice system is inherently racist and blah, 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 blah. Um But they don't, they can't see that. Like they, they don't see that as a politicization of, of the legal system. Um You know, that they could then turn around and say like this, this, this shit in Bolivia. I mean, the, the Blinken, uh, I, I can't, I can't take him seriously with that name. I mean, he just, I, do you guys see that movie uh, Robin Hood men in tights? I just keep on thinking of the Blinken character, the blind one, Uh, (laughs) um, whenever I hear his name. But uh, yeah, like the the Biden foreign policy, at least so far, is like very, very difficult to distinguish from Trump's, like, especially with regards to Latin America. I mean, you know, Juan Guaido is still the legitimately elected president of Venezuela. Well, he was Um, so charming with Nancy Pelosi, you know, she... She was just okay. into it. Yeah, <laughs> biggest fucking clown. Um yeah. I, 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 I'm like legally yeah. bound to to mention this every time I talk about Juan Guaido. That I that I, I, I might we have already. my talked about it the last time I was here. That he has a paid full time astrologer that he travels with. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I did not know that.
2: <laughs> I was just watching the up. Reagan's documentary where they interviewed their astrologer. That
7: yes. Uh, <laughs> Great little, great little nugget that I did not know about. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's um, amazing. I mean, the LA, the LA fucking New Age shit. I mean, you could be like a, a a doctrinaire movement conservative like Reagan was, but the New Age shit as an actor will still get you. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's amazing. I yeah. I just want to ask so you guys though, does this sound does this sound
2: politicized and does this sound um does this sound unreasonable because to me uh you know but the bolivian uh, minister of justice talking about this sounds or you know looks like the most rational reason for locking somebody up um that i've ever heard and i don't even you know i'm not even for locking people up on most things you know what i mean like yeah
8: Sin embargo, eh, yo creo que hay que llamar la atención de todo lo La no es una medida excepcional. No debe ser la regla, debe ser la excepción. Y lo que buscamos no es una detención de cuatro meses. Nosotros lo que estamos buscando es una condena de 30 años, porque acá ha habido masacres sangrientas, Acá ha habido eh, familias que han quedado sin padre, eh, madres que han quedado sin hijos, y ha habido, eh, un, eh, en palabras de la CIDH, eh, una masacre sangrienta en el país, en Sencata, en Sacaba, en Montero, De la a el, Ciccata, en el de la paz, uh, de con la injusti- paz, no la periodo de tiempo the period que se time granted, para of time that has been granted to ensure the justice system
1: treats
8: this with speed as we should not to, uh, to, to all to the, the evidence, testificales collect all the testimony, evidence, evidence, all the expert evidence and de estado understand that the coup here is part of building an investigation shouldn't take longer than four Eh, debo anunciar al país que día of of this, mañana no eh, en contra de Janine Añez su gabinete uh, de
7: How did this woman yeah. not flee the country? Like what was what was going through her head? I mean, I guess maybe she took a cue from uh venezuela supposedly the most authoritarian state in the universe who somehow allows the guy that everyone you know the guy that calls himself the president uh and and the the developed world calls the president to just traipse around and do rallies and shit uh no
1: i love that like look whatever you want to say and i'm not like i'm perfectly willing to say that like especially after the transition from chavez to maduro that they're Plenty of things the Venezuelan government's done, you know that that's legitimate to uh, you know to, to to criticize. We can be warts and all about it, but it is hilarious that given the way that they were being portrayed, like as if like Maduro was like running like that, like was like you know the Latin American Stalin. Uh, that they let this guy spend months go around going around to military bases, being like, "Hey, I'm the real president. Follow me," and yeah. just and just did not touch him did not arrest him It's just like like yeah no it, it's such a pathetic like i loved one of my all-time favorite trump burns was that thing about uh how uh beta uh about how uh, Beto <laughs> of
7: venezuela <That's> <laughs> Trump had a way with the burns, man. He had a way with the burns. When he called Pete Buttigieg uh, Alfred E. Newman and forced Pete Buttigieg to be like, "Oh, I guess I've I've never heard of that reference. I guess it's like a generational thing. Like, shut the fuck up. You know exactly what it is. Uh, (laughs) You're a fucking try-hard American millennial. You know exactly what Mad Magazine is. Come on. Um, But uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I find it very weird. I mean, that because what happened in Bolivia... Contrary to what happened in Brazil, in which Brazil was a much more kind of modern coup, it was this sort of judicial coup in which the, you know, the military didn't really intervene. Um, in uh, Bolivia, was kind of your standard, traditional Latin American coup in which the military was like, "No, you you got to get out of here," and Evo Morales had to like flee under the cover of night, <laughs> and like leave the country. If not, he would have been arrested or worse killed. Um, you know, your coup by military coup by any you know reasonable interpretation of those words. Uh, to think you could just be like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna live in my house here in Bolivia after doing that," while the other guy, while the other side just takes back power. Um, yeah, no, that's that's for weird. I she should have just gone to Miami. She would have been welcomed yeah, with open arms expect- and lived a lived a great life uh, as a sort of Bolivian expat uh, leader of the opposition to to the mass from miami like i don't understand why that option was not on the table for her
1: yeah i i don't uh try to remember if i uh ever mentioned this to you i had uh uh in miami and uh um in two you know anyway whatever uh 2000 and uh 2007 i guess i remember i was uh i was i was kicked out of uh and granted this is like a dickish thing on my part that i was wearing in the first place but i i was uh uh, I was kicked out of a uh, Cuban restaurant in South Miami because because I was there ah. uh, with, with a friend. Uh, uh, you know, wearing my uh, Hugo Chavez is my president shirt. Uh, so uh, that's uh, you know, which which was the uh, which was which was sort of characteristic yeah. you know, of the uh, of the Miami years. A lot of a lot of arguments yeah. about stuff like this with a lot of people. And uh, uh, I can
7: imagine. I'm sure you were very patient, uh, but uh, the. Uh, People don't realize in Miami the Venezuela thing. Like people, people think Miami as like uh, you know rapidly this Cuba you know thing and the Castro thing. That's kind of lost a little bit of its, you know, it's kind of lost a little bit. People don't get as worked up about it. The people who do get worked up about it are almost cosplaying, and no one really believes it anymore. You know, like the Cuba thing has been. People have kind of moved on. There's still like the very old reactionaries who get very mad but even they feel like they're just going through the motions at this point. Uh, the Venezuela thing is the thing that gets people really riled up in Miami these days. And that's, that's the cudgel. And that's the thing that's like, well, that's what we're going to become. If you, you know, lower the Medicare age from 65 <laughs> to 50. <laughs> yeah, well, right. you
1: know, I, I'll always uh, remember uh, standing in line to uh, uh, early vote in Miami in 2008. And um I mean, it was hilarious because the contrast, you know, because like the uh, Obama campaign, uh, they had um, they had some like you know B or C list celebrities who are there like working the crowd, getting people to stay in line. Willie
7: Chirino, they always bring him out. You know, <laughs> that's the guy.
1: And uh, yeah, I think they had like Cynthia Nixon and uh, the guy I, for- I forget his name, the guy who played uh, uh, Felix Leiter in uh, the Daniel Craig James Bond movies. Yes.
7: Yes, yes, yes. Uh,
1: um, but um, Jeffrey Wright, Jeffrey Wright—that's that's the one. Yep. Uh, so there were like those people who were like working the crowd, getting people to stay in line, voted uh, for the uh, Obama campaign, and they were like passing out bottles of water, all that. Now, now I guess illegal in Georgia, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 um, and the McCain campaign was represented by like three guys with like hand-drawn signs with an outline of Cuba that said "Cuba got." change in 1959 uh you know <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was definitely uh you know you could tell who's gonna win but uh but yeah like venezuela has that same ben did mondo. you
7: watch the uh 538 uh no 537 doc on hbo not 538 nate silver 537 there was a documentary on hbo uh produced by adam mckay directed by billy corbin who's a miami filmmaker who did uh cocaine cowboys um he did a documentary about the 2000 election and the, the recount in Florida. You should watch it as someone who lived in Miami. Yeah. Uh, 100%. It would be a fun kind of like little breakdown on this show. But uh, no, because no, no. they really yeah. capture... At that point, the Cuba shit was... Like people were really worked up about it. Elian Gonzalez was probably the last gasp of of like really authentic Cuban rage. Um, uh Mm-hmm. Over this shit. Um, and some of the images, I mean, i i was I was a kid at the time there, so I remember it. but I was a kid. I mean, I was fifteen. I wasn't that I wasn't that young. But um, w- watching those images again and seeing that whole thing, um, I just remember like Janet Reno who was Clinton's attorney general, who just made a decision to send Elian back. Uh, the chance of uh, Lechuga, Pepino, Abajo Jainerino um, was just a, a, amazing. Uh, you got to watch it. As someone who lived in Miami, you will very much enjoy it. It captures yeah. it very, very well.
1: Well, I thought Cocaine Cowboys was great. You know, I, I, Cocaine I, which, Cowboys was great. Yeah, which was actually funny because I, I when I watched that movie, I had just moved to this the new apartment that I was in uh, that was literally across the street from the Dadeland Mall in like South Miami Kendall which is the opening incident of the movie is the uh, Dadeland Mall yeah. massacre uh, so yeah. um so yeah i want to, um and and since you brought Wait, up
2: have you ever have you ever seen this this is because you brought up uh Venezuela and Bolivia um i just saw this yesterday it's Chavez inviting uh, uh Evo Morales to join Twitter have you ever oh, seen hell this yeah,
8: video? yeah. Oh, I hope I had to see Invitamos a Evo al Twitter. Me, me que ha sido una lo de mi...
7: God, he was such a fucking character, Chávez. The way he secreta. spoke, like I, I don't know if you guys speak Spanish, but he just a pena his.
1: Y ya pasan de 000, me dicen los ¿no? de mi so the is Twitter followers, just up. Me, critican, <laughs> <otros> me, discutan, <laughs> pero ¿qué me importa a mí es un contacto yeah. con el mundo hay gente que no yeah. cree no ese no es chavez no sé qué más eso se lo están escribiendo no no yo escribo mi mensajito la no, noche yeah, like um, llegamos y luego, like I love the way that Chavez did his shit like, uh, pues. like wave around oh, a copy of Noam Chomsky's book Hegemony and Survival at the UN and talk oh, about yeah. how he could, he could still smell sulfur from with George the was,
7: sulfur. <laughs> Huelo, hay sulfura en esta cámara. Aquí en las <laughs> Naciones Unidas. You know, like he was just a fucking yeah, yeah. character. But it's funny, like, you know, the, the Luis Arce, the guy who uh, uh, succeeded Evo Morales as the leader of the MAS, and now um, Arauz in Ecuador, like this kind of new generation of left wing leaders in Latin America, very different brand from the original pink Tide guys, you know, Chavez and Correa, and these guys who are just. Pure like macho charisma, all of them, you know, like they are just like all fucking well. Arce uh, is uh, is is
2: Evo Morales's um, uh, economist, right? Like he's the yeah, and if you
7: watch him speak, he's like a very smart, very you know, very thoughtful, kind of calm guy, you know. He does not have the same um, um, and Arauz, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen me, he speaks like perfect English. Uh, sounds like a very polished dude uh, just a totally different style and uh, um, I'm like curious to see how it's gonna work out um you know like how much of that of their appeal was based off of this you know just really kind of otherworldly personalities um and uh, and these guys are just like they're much they're like the new the newer kind of like the pe- the next kind of wave. Uh, much like Dilma and and uh, mm-hmm. and Lula, just kind of much more um, calm, I guess is the is the for lack of a yeah, better term. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. no, that's that, that's right. Like, uh, and I think that also. I mean, I I can imagine somebody listening to all this and and not you know getting some of the point about these guys because like there's also look politically I think that the ambitions of uh, of some of these leaders were like somewhat limited, you know, that they, they had, they knew they had to play within the rules of a certain kind of like international order. That's this police by the United States, uh, you know, world bank, etc., And, and that they, they wanted to do some, you know, redistributive or poverty alleviating things within that, but not, you know, but like it's relatively mild stuff. Uh, but like, I also think that that shows like just how bad uh, U.S. imperialism has been in Latin America and just how bad sort of local reactionary forces have been in some of these countries. Uh, because even doing those like sort of social democratic baby steps, you get this absolutely insane response, you know, where, where uh, you know, Lula yeah. gets freaked up, you know, there's, there's, there's the coup against morality, you know, like all of these, you know, uh, all of these things happen that like, you know, you just can't do anything without setting off this kind of reaction.
2: Yeah. Well, what was the Lula one? They said um, that they were upset that now there were poor people in the airports, like the airports are looking dirty now.
7: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the added element in Brazil that is somewhat different um, from some of these other countries is just the, I mean, Brazil is essentially like, you know, like a giant version of the American South, you know, Um, like one, like very what, I think it was the largest slave society in in um, in the world um, during like the height of slavery. And that, you know, if you think about the sort of effects, like the, the sort of persistence of of a sort of uh, racial hierarchy in um, in the American South, I mean, multiply that by like a lot in Brazil, and that element, you know, uh, is just very much very much present in 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 everything that that goes on so like just the fact that black people um and like non-white people were like that is very much um at play like they they it's just it's 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 somewhat different i mean in 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 obviously in in bolivia there's a large indigenous population but it's like different than it's a different dynamic um than the sort of slave overseer kind of situation that 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 you see in, in, in Brazil. Um, you know, yeah, I one of the last to say that... countries to they were one of
2: the last countries to abolish slavery, right? I mean, the original yes. Brazilian colony.
7: Yes. And it's just like, I mean, people don't realize how big Brazil is. Brazil has more people than the rest of South America combined. Like there's more people like Brazil's like two, like over 200 million people. Um, you know, like Argentina, which is a huge country has like, like 80 million people. Um, you know, it's just totally dwarfed. Um, it's it's this like, huge sprawling um country that like is just has this incredible incredibly violent past like violence towards its own people that it's just like kind of different from from some of these other countries um but yeah, yeah. I mean it's, no, it's, that, very, that, that's very present
1: Yeah Brazil I believe is uh is isn't that where um uh, George W. Bush famously on a on a diplomatic visit said, Oh, you have black people there too?
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. just just like us. You got black people too. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you ever go get, uh, get, get you ever get How hurricanes? Do they get you ever get hurricanes in some of these big cities?
7: <laughs> you do a good you do a good bush. That's a good bush. That is a that is a strong bush. Holy shit. Yeah. That's was good.
2: Yeah. I no, respect that.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and so so we are we are getting up to the uh, to the point where uh, we want to wrap up. Uh, I do want to just uh, before we, uh, uh, you know, to uh, to end the uh, the Latin America tour, you know, because because something that I, um, you know, something that I talk about, uh, you know, with uh, with Michael, we were talking about these guys. Is you know, is that like something that that is like really. Um, tells you about where a lot of these sort of pink tide leaders, you know, uh, you know, came, you know, came from politically, you know, with, you know, what they came up in is that like just an assumed element of that politics was always, you know, solidarity with the, uh, the you know, Cuban revolution. And, yeah. uh, and there was, uh, you know, just a, uh, an article that, uh, that just hit, like uh, just came out like earlier this evening or today uh in, uh in the Washington Post that I did, uh, I just want to just want to highlight uh, says uh, against the odds Cuba could become a uh, coronavirus uh, vaccine uh, powerhouse. Uh, and it uh, it says um, that uh, uh, Cuban leader Fidel Castro uh, vowed to build a biotech uh, juggernaut in the Caribbean advancing the idea in the early 1980s with six researchers in a tiny Havana lab. Uh, Forty years later, the communist island nation uh, could be on the cusp of a singular breakthrough, becoming the world's smallest country to develop not just one, but multiple uh, coronavirus vaccines. Five vaccine candidates are in development, two in late stage trials, uh, with the goal of a broader rollout by May. Uh, So it just seems like... You know, it's one of these things, like you don't have to romanticize it too much. You know, you can say this is like this yeah. is a this is a society that has good things about it and bad things about it, and you can criticize the you know bad and celebrate the good, but like the thing no, that- the
2: sentence the sentence under it, um, that they're able to store at room temperature for weeks and long-term storage as high as forty-six point four degrees. That's that's insane. That that took like yeah. That took our, you know, pharmaceutical research industry a really fucking long time because, you know, they were wasting the vaccines at first, um, you know, yeah. because they had to be frozen to be, or you know, what I mean, like.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, so and, and like the thing that always bothered me with this, right? Like, like when uh, back in like uh, just before the Nevada caucus, uh, when, um, you know, when when people were. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're giving my awesome dad, Bernie Sanders shit about, you know, the, uh, his, his past comments about Cuba. Uh, he um, like, th- there's just this weird way that like, it didn't even matter that like the beginning of his, his like first sentence of his Cuba answer oh, yeah. was criticizing, uh, you know, the Cuban government. And the last sentence yeah. was criticizing it. If he said something nice about them in between. And and it always just seemed like, it's like, what's the standard? Like somehow this one country Like, every American president has found something nice to say about Saudi Arabia, right? Like, you know, somehow this one country, Cuba, like, we just have to treat it like it's fucking Narnia. You know, it's like always winter and never Christmas. You can never admit that anything positive has happened in Cuba or that there could be some upsides, for example, to having this nationalized pharmaceutical production, you know, that could be directed uh, towards, like, urgent necessities, like doing something about covid
7: yeah, I mean, it, a lot of the uh, a lot of the responses to the tweet that I, I, on that article were like, like you know, against the odds or whatever. And no, but yeah, against the odds, you know, like Cuba is a fucking small island in the middle of the fucking Caribbean, um, and uh, you know, people talk about like the poverty there. It's like, man you'd rather be born in Cuba than Haiti or the Dominican Republic or the comparable island nations. I mean, Puerto Rico, you could, you could become an an American citizen that gives you all kinds of advantages, obviously. But, uh, you know, the comparable island nations of that size in that part of the world, you that's not, I'm not taking my chances, uh, you know, uh, being born there. It's just, it's, they're very poor, very, very difficult lives in Cuba. Like, for all of the dis the inherent disadvantages of both its geographic limitations but also its economic sanctions from the most powerful country in the history of the universe uh Mm -hmm. which by the way happens to be 90 miles away um (laughs) are are remarkable it is against the odds like it is remarkable the kind of things that they're able to do um in spite of those um just unbelievable odds um and it just it goes to show like it, it the mind boggles at the potential of something like the united states even if we were like if we just dedicated like if we achieved kind of like social democracy to the extent that like uh um you know some of the nordic countries got um you know not not necessarily a full on revolution like in cuba but if we even got like to that in which we dedicated you know the 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 awesome power of our Unbelievable geographic advantages, like the most geographic advantages any country could ever wish for, um, and just incredible wealth and 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 power to people's needs rather than enriching um, capitalists. The mind just boggles at the poten- the, the the unleashing of human potential um, that that we could achieve. I mean, it's just it, it's really remarkable. Like when when you see stories like this. Um, even in the fucking washington post of all places
1: yeah totally uh by the way somebody in the chat brings up the scene in uh, Michael Moore's movie sicko with the 9 mm. 11 uh, uh first responders being brought to uh, uh be treated in uh in in Cuba uh and uh which which is funny because actually at the uh uh at the theater uh where I, where I watched sicko in miami uh, there were actually people who walked out of the theater when they they started saying nice things about Cuba
7: so uh just
1: to- i'm really know.
2: surprised we haven't watched scarface as a as a movie stream yet
7: <laughs>
2: talk about man the-
7: i i remember the last time i watched scarface i was like oh, this is just it's like too much cartoonish but like maybe it is yeah. it like do you, are you guys in on scarface or no i just
2: think well, it's, it's an interesting i mean it's just an interesting movie I mean, I,
1: it's, think. It's, it's a, I mean it's a goofy movie i it's been many years since i watched it uh, which which is also kind of funny uh like my favorite fact about scarface is that most of it had to be filmed in california like they were originally like filming it in miami uh but they uh but there were actually like violent attacks you know on the on the set you know because of yeah. uh, the portrayal of uh, you know the cuban american uh, community uh and um which you know is funny in itself obviously but like uh but it's also funny cuz like every like you know when i lived there it's like every like you know 23 year old you know cuban dude you know that was like his favorite movie
7: of course yeah they love it yeah
2: well that really is the thing that you always say about like you know everybody likes to see themselves on screen not necessarily in the and like that that they'd be doing anything similar but like you know i mean cuban american people represented on screen like it's you know and it's like a super testosterone movie, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. everybody likes to see themselves on, on, on screen, even if the movie is obviously not a positive portrayal of yeah. them. So it's like, you know, like, like gangsters. Well, like, I mean, like,
7: like, uh, like, like, you know, like positive. it's not about I positive know, or negative. It's well, about right? how fucking cool you are, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> um not about whether you do good things or bad things it's about like how fucking alpha you are like how cool you are like that always has some appeal to see like some cuban guy just fucking killing people left and right like fuck yeah that sounds that's cool you know? uh, even even makes the the implied
2: incest seem pretty cool you know yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, no, I, I just think, I think that's a politically interesting movie. I don't think that it's no.
1: Like, no it'd be an interesting uh, one to talk about for sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, um, speaking of movies, since, uh, since the last time you were on the Mad show, you have some big news, Donda.
7: Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we announced a, a movie. I'm, I'm working with, uh, some, some of our good friends from Jacobin. Um, we developed a movie based off of an article in Jacobin, um, about the, uh, about a gender non-binary kid named Stefan Bertram Lee um, who went to go fight for the YPG in, in Syria. Um, So yeah, yeah, we're very excited about it.
1: Yeah. Which, which, which I mean, I mean, obviously I'm really happy for you guys, but also I'm, I'm very like, I think it's, it's a really like, I I think it's going to be a really valuable thing. You know, this movie gets made like uh, to have that story, being told by people who actually understand and share the politics of these fighters, as opposed to just like some god awful like you know sort of Clinton world, you know.
7: Uh. Well, you say that, Ben, but Hillary Clinton has also announced <laughs> uh, a tell. I think it's going to be a television project on the YPJ, which is the women's militia in Syria, and you can imagine what that'll be like just a bunch of girl bosses you know <laughs> saying that the real problem with isis is that they're manspreading i thought you
2: were gonna say that, I you were gonna say that hillary clinton signed on as a as a producer and
7: <laughs> no no she has her, we, we're we are competing with hillary clinton to to mm-hmm. for uh for the syria for the syria project so it's either us on the left uh win or the libs or the awful libs get it the real problem,
2: yeah. Syria is there's too much testosterone. Let's get it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or you that's have to true. Do like the uh, uh, the Chapo, like rising and falling, lib, uh, lib, voice, like the the yeah. Democrat voice from 2016, Chapo. Yeah,
7: you know, It'd be they, funny if like yeah, that's the how they. That's how they, defeat, ISIS. that's how they defeat ISIS. All their heads explode when they start doing the Democrat voice, like kind of like in Mars Attacks, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh all right. Um, yeah. So, uh, very, uh, you know, very excited about this. Uh, people should also, um, uh, so while uh, while Nando's here, this is actually a good uh, good reminder that the uh, that uh, we still need to put out. It's it's it, it dropped for patrons a couple weeks ago, but we still need to uh, release to the unwashed masses this month's uh, Sopranos bonus episode. So uh, maybe we, maybe we should even do that tomorrow. But uh, but is is a good I'll, discussion.
2: I'll get, uh, I'll get on it when I get it's off. It's a uh,
1: it's a classic. Uh, um, yeah, it's about uh, uh, the uh, uh, college. Uh, the episode where uh, where, where Tony uh, takes uh, takes to look at college. Great episode. But, yeah. Was, Are you in the too. mafia? We we
2: what yeah. what episode did we quote that? I feel like at the beginning of a cold open, we had like a cold <laughs> open where oh.
1: I don't know, yeah. I don't remember. But yeah, but yeah, that's right. The uh our um yeah, that's the R U and the Mafia episode. It's like one of the classic Sopranos episodes. I think it's one of the ones that sticks in people's minds, even if it's been a long time since they uh uh since they uh, since they watched it. Uh but uh looking uh but yeah, so uh so yeah, really good stuff. Uh always always a pleasure to uh to talk to to do those with with Nando and Waz and uh and our friend Mike Racine uh nando you should um uh you should uh you should come on i, I don't know what your schedule is on wednesdays but you should come on some wednesday to uh, talk about movies with us um, I'm that, down. That um but
7: i'm down
1: uh, nice uh so uh we are uh we're gonna cut it uh there for today i just want to plug stuff that's uh, that's coming up uh so uh this wednesday uh, with a bunch of people we, uh, We're we going to be talking about uh, Starship Troopers I'm excited
2: uh, for that, it Finally, it's finally happening
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, with, with, with Daniel oh, Bessner One uh, of and the Matthew best um, And of course, you know, Ryan and Forrest And uh, yeah, J. Andrew World's going to get in on that uh on uh on friday got the uh, philosophy friday live stream on sunday uh for the sunday night debate breakdown uh jg michael from parallax views podcast we're we gonna do this yesterday there's a scheduling conflict
7: another so great movie
1: good to do it uh next oh yeah parallax views that's right yeah uh so uh and then um uh yeah that was one of the movies they talked about on the short-lived uh frost uh uh, Frost Crispin uh podcast, which was which was good. I enjoyed that what was going mm. on. Uh but um but yeah. So Sunday with JG Michael, we're gonna be talking do continuing the usual Sunday night debate breakdown live streams. We're gonna be we're gonna be watching and talking about uh this is this is a real thing that really happened. Uh Timothy Leary's nineteen ninety debate with G Gordon Liddy. Uh so uh that's that Shit. that is
7: what, what was that about? What was the debate about? <laughs> it's like the 60s
1: and counterculture, Nixonian repression. Okay. So, uh, uh, and then next Monday we are doing our, uh, our long planned, uh, Sam Harris is wrong about everything episode, uh, with, uh, with, with Ryan Lake, Mark Warren, Gene Bodgelon talk about different aspects of the many, many things that Sam Harris is wrong about. This is something, mm. this is the idea that in a way we had before we even had this podcast, mm. Uh, just because he's wrong about so many things. And, and, oh, God. Does that mean I
2: have to go down the Sarah, Sam Harris rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, bless that's you right guys
7: on. for doing that. Bless you guys for like actually consuming that fucking boring-ass shit. A hell of a way to tell me, Ben. Jesus.
1: <laughs> it's, it's been on the Google Doc, Forrest. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're next Monday we're going to have a different producer because Forrest is going to rage quit. You know, now oh, that's all he,
2: he has to watch produced his set Produced by J. Andrew World. <laughs> that's, right,
1: that's right that's right uh so uh and then um and then yeah wednesday next week uh we're uh, we're gonna be talking about the shining uh for uh, for the wednesday uh, movie live stream and
2: it's your birthday right
1: yeah what? yeah so that was the thing like it's because we we're gonna do it because uh kale brooks wanted to come on to uh talk about the shining with us he's got some thoughts about that movie and the oh. and like and yeah well you should join us uh but uh having um Uh, I love to
7: own, I love to make fun of kale. Well, I don't (laughs) make fun of him. I just more like embarrass him because he's so young and such a smarty pants, but like, um, because he's so smart and he's so young, he has like a certain, um, I don't know. There's like a certain something that comes with age. You know, I'm, I'm talking like a really old man about like, (laughs) you know, not everything is, is the, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but like, I love to like needle him for that kind of shit. Uh, you know, like uh, yeah.
1: What? Well, yeah. well, well, since I'm pretty sure I'm older than you, I can appreciate that. Uh, so, yeah.
7: how
2: how old is Kale? I don't.
7: Kale's like 23. Oh, over. good! I'm finally I'm older than somebody. <laughs> oh my god, you're young too. What the fuck? Yeah, I'm 26. But yeah, oh, um... dude, kids are so smart. Fucking Griscom's like 26 too. The kids okay. are so smart, I think, Ben. I, I mean, 20, they were not forged. They, they, all these people came of age post 2016, when shit was easy. Bernie was around, you know. Like, you know, me and you, man, we were fighting people like back in, you know, the Bush years and shit. Like, I was in the, yeah, yeah, I was right. in the Google Reader, I was in the comment section of like, you know, uh, fucking uh, Megan Mcardle and fucking Maddie yes, back in the Google Reader days. You know, exactly. these fucking people with their chapos and their jacobins where they just tell you know they have all the shit uh, you know that no, they can no, just I was,
1: I was I was getting kicked out of Cuban restaurants in Miami before yeah.
7: was, you know so Dude. yeah uh, yeah no
2: absolutely
1: now there's, a,
2: now there's a Cuban restaurant in Miami called Los Castros what is what is happening oh, around oh my no. god <laughs> yeah yeah no, exactly.
1: exactly
7: it's all yeah. these ironic uh, zoomers you know
1: <laughs> so uh so yeah uh yeah Wednesday afternoon like Wednesday next week, April seventh, uh, was the only week that uh, that Kale uh, could uh, could do it because they're going to be off from the Jackman show that day, and so mm-hmm. like I, I was thinking about. It well, and, yeah, if I'm fun.
7: around, if my schedule, if Anna Kasparian doesn't make me do the Young Turks that day, oh, is yeah. it at this hour? I can probably do both, maybe, but yeah. Um, um, maybe if, we should. If you want we we me to make fun later, of Kale
1: later <laughs> later than usual, but yeah, it's a. Uh, so I almost didn't. It's like all right, it's my birthday. Uh, you know, I I I almost didn't do it. But I was like, you know what? I could talk about one of my favorite movies with some friends, you know, like for a while on my birthday. That sounds like a legitimate, you know, birthday activity. I reserve the right to be genially drunk during that discussion, but you know, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so uh, in any case, we're gonna
2: have everybody text you and be like, Ben, what the fuck did you say yesterday? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Twitter is exploding right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, what, what, what problematic takes could I have about The Shining? Uh, the uh, <laughs> I think Jack Torres had a point.
7: <laughs> well, I I have a problematic take about The Shining, but I don't know if I can do it in public cuz for fear of getting canceled. Oh, a yeah, uh, really problematic take. All right. Wow. Yeah, I think a problematic take. I would have gone
2: I would have gone insane too if that was my wife. god damn <laughs>
4: <laughs> 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 And that kid.
2: Thanks. <laughs> Fuck that kid. Yeah, like, yeah they they know, they deserve, deserve to, to die. die. Yeah, in, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, fair enough. All right. Well, always really good to see you, brother. Uh Me and, too, man. um I will uh, I will see everybody here uh, very uh very shortly. Left is best.